Popcorn Poops is brought to you by Audible.com. Please visit audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops for a free audiobook and free 30-day trial of their subscription service. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download to listeners of Popcorn Poops along with a 30-day trial of their services. This week we're recommending Romeo and Juliet, the fully dramatized audio edition by William Shakespeare. To download this or another audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops. Be sure to visit the correct URL so they know we sent you, and you'll be helping to support our show. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops for your free audiobook. We are the Popcorn Poops. Hey everyone, and welcome to Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet. My name is Jessica. And I'm Dustin. This month, our theme is Best Picture Oscar Winners, and my pick for this week's episode is John Madden's 1998 film, Shakespeare in Love. If you are syncing this recording up to the movie, go ahead and start the film and then press pause as soon as the Universal Vanity Card completely fades to black. It's time to start the movie. Sinkers, press play at the beep after the countdown. Ready? Three, two, one. And this is our last movie in our our month of best picture oscar winners and it's and it's your pick it is and this is a, another one that i don't think you had seen before we did this uh before preparing for this um i don't think i had seen it all the way through before so this is really fresh to me as well uh and i'm kind of surprised how how much i liked it um i think it's pretty good and we'll we'll talk about why i think it's pretty good but i mean uh, yeah it's your pick so i'm going to let you kind of take this one by the reins. Well, I definitely, I'm, you know, it's kind of funny to me because I I have actually seen a lot of movies that, you know, won the Best Picture Award. Um, and I love a lot of those movies and we didn't do them. I didn't pick any of them. Like, I love Casablanca. That's one of my favorite yeah. movies. And I'm still a little burned that you wouldn't let me do Braveheart. Even yeah. Though, we, so so now, now that we've actually revealed and we're talking about the last one that we've done. Movies uh, that we did not pick. Yeah. The movie that we did not pick. Um, uh, Braveheart, of course. Uh, I wouldn't let that happen because it's just <laughs> it's just too damn long. Uh, Casablanca. We discussed Casablanca. Yeah. That was that was uh, that was one of them. Uh, I think I had also mentioned maybe The Apartment from 1960. Mm-hmm. Um of course, there were a lot of movies um, that that I had actually seen that I thought about doing, but but this one just seemed more appropriate for me. I mean, definitely your kind of movie. I mean, you're well, definitely my kind of topic. I, yes, well, I that's assume. what I mean. Not really my sure. kind of movie. Sure, I'm not really into romantic comedies. Uh, this is probably up there with like the other ten I've seen in my life. Yeah. So yeah, that's not really one of your one of your genres. But the fact that it is based on you know the works of, of Shakespeare, Shakespeare, not and it's not, kind of a I mean it's a period piece too. It's a period piece. A little um, silly sometimes in that it's regard. Quite silly with uh, <laughs> our our mug that Shakespeare has on his table coming up in mm-hmm. the next scene that says what a gift from Stratford upon Avon or something like that. Yeah, like there's lots of little winks and nods to the audience as to, you know, whether or not you're if you're really familiar with Shakespeare, you'll watch this movie and be like, "Oh, that's cute. 
oh, that's cute. That's also cute. You'll say it's cute a lot. Uh, if you're not familiar with Shakespeare at all, you'll watch this movie and be like, oh. Why are they talking about this person? <laughs> like all the Who comments. Of, well, not Who just the fuck Shakespeare. is John Webster? <laughs> right. Well, not just familiar with Shakespeare, but familiar with Elizabethan theater. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, we've got a lot of stuff in here. A lot of characters in this movie are actually based on characters that existed and were right. people that existed I mean, in real life. Who's a, is there a major character in this movie that is not actually based? I don't on? think so. Even Fe- uh, what Fenny Fennyman? I Fenny don't Man, believe. I don't think he's actually. He, they. I think. I feel like they actually split Jeffrey Rush's character uh, that we're we're seeing right now. Uh, Henslow. Henslow. Philip Henslow. Henslow. Uh, and they split uh, elements of who he was as a person into split them off and created the character of Hugh Fennyman mm-hmm. because uh, as it turns out uh, Philip Henslow, Henslow who we are seeing right now kind of uh, going through the ringer from moneylenders who he uh, owes money to mm-hmm. um, he in fact was a moneylender himself that's right. how he financed uh, the, the the plays in his, his playhouse and you know the other things that he did in his life. If you don't know who he was he was a theatrical entrepreneur um, and his diary exists as one of the most important primary sources that we have today about Elizabeth Elizabethan theater. Um, and so his role in this play is, of course, very important to uh, the history. In this play. Well, this movie. In this play. <laughs> his role in this movie about this play being written. <laughs> yes. His yes, in this movie about a play that is being written, yeah, okay, and performed in the movie. You danced around it enough. You got okay. it. Yeah, this is the scene you were talking about where he's throwing uh, wad wadded up pieces of paper where he's practicing his signature, uh, which, is, which another, is of course another reference, another reference to Shakespeare. I, I believe that there are six known. Is it is it like six or something? There are six surviving signatures that are attached to four different legal documents, right? All and recognized to be his signature, and they're all so different that there is a question that has come up and and some some theorize especially you know conspiracy theorists about you know Shakespeare and who Shakespeare really was big air quotes on really was mm-hmm. uh, and whether or not he was illiterate and was capable of even writing the plays that are attributed to him mm-hmm. uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get introduced to the character of Christopher Marlowe and if you know anything about him then you'll know exactly where we're going with that part of the conversation but uh, yeah things around the room like there was the there's the chest that he throws stuff into that might, may or may not be a reference to the ver, the Merchant of Venice, and then there's the cup that he throws it into that says Stratford upon Avon, which was of course Shakespeare's birthplace, and then you've got the skull on the shelf, right. which is of course a reference to Hamlet, and, and of course the, this movie is just an endless uh, barrage of that kind of stuff. Right, most of it is completely insignificant yeah, uh, to. Hey, you want to know something interesting? The, sure. the the apple, or did you see him stick his pen into a rotting apple? Yeah, yeah. I I I don't know what that's about. I'm sure you're about to tell me, but I do like that. Just yeah. As well, it, I mean, it's not really about anything. It's just that's actual. Like that's reality. That's, that's how it actually that's was. That's what um, I read some through the you know greatness of the internet I found like some old school text or something and apparently back in the day school masters masters taught their students to stick um, their pens into rotting apples because that was the best way to keep them right to keep them moist that mm-hmm. and that and that makes sense because of course quills were just shaped from you know plumes they right. feathers and you know a, a dead feather that doesn't have nutrients coming from the body that it was ostensibly plucked out of stuff. it's going to dry out and it's going to crack so you've got to keep it uh 
in one way or another. So uh, yeah. I, Anyways, but I this like movie that. does a lot of that stuff without though. without knowing that was an actual thing that people did historically. I thought that that was I knew exactly what it was, and I was like, oh, that's that's really interesting. That's really cool. That this movie does actually live up to a lot of that stuff. A lot of little small moments, like the way she cleans her teeth and stuff. With the stick and everything, yeah. like little yeah. little touches like that. I mean, it's pretty cool. They were, they clearly did um, their research more than Gladiator, <laughs> <laughs> or at least they listened to the historians that sure. they hired, <laughs> sure, um, and didn't tell them to just leave the set because they didn't care. Right. When uh, when this movie starts, we get some text on the screen, and and we we establish the year and the location as London in 1593. And the text reads: In the glory days of the Elizabethan theater, two playhouses were fighting it out for writers and audiences. North of the city was the Curtain Theater, home to England's most famous actor Richard Burbage. Across the river was the competition, built by Philip Henslow, a businessman with a cash flow problem. The Rose, and that's the name of of his theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't. Do you know if that's historically accurate? I, I know the Rose was a theater that actually existed. It was, and it was purchased or it was built by Henslow. Right. Um, he actually purchased some property uh, before that that I'll talk about later when when we have another scene. Um, but in reference to like whether or not the the story is historically accurate, I mean it is and it isn't, of course, as all good. Sure. <laughs> all good. All. Uh, mo- most um, <laughs> let's rephrase this. Most historical fiction, fiction period pieces. Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, so. So I think what they're actually refer—I mean, I don't think I know what they're actually referencing with the two playhouses uh, fighting it out—is the war. What's commonly referred to as the War of the Theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, really, most scholars consider that war, that rivalry, to actually be between having been between the playwrights themselves and not actually the theaters, not actually the houses or the companies. Right. Um, Mostly it was between Ben Johnson and his rivals John Marston and Thomas Decker, all very famous playwrights from back in the day. Primarily, the War of Theaters uh, consisted of those playwrights writing plays where they included characters that were supposed to be making fun of the other playwrights. Ah, I see. Yes, very (laughs) mature of them. Uh, The reason it likely happened was a direct result and the War of Theaters was between 1599 to 1602, so that's actually after the date here. We have what this play, or this play, this movie is set in 93, 1593, right? Right. So the War of Theaters actually it, it happened after um, the events in this play and the timeline. Mm-hmm. But it was likely a, re- a direct result of the Bishop's Ban of 1599, where satire was banned from verse and prose. Satire, they banned, they were just like... They banned satire. You're not allowed to do satire It's too anymore. subversive. <laughs> so the only outlet for writers of satire was in plays. And um, actually Shakespeare, though, it's, it's often debated whether or not he had any role in the War of Theaters whatsoever. Yeah. So his involvement in it in this movie is completely just creative license. Yeah. I you know, I've I've read quite a bit of Shakespeare, not nearly as much as you, I think. Um, but I su- surprisingly don't know much about him as a man. Oh, so, I mean, that's a lot in part 
due to the fact that I don't think people know much about him as a man. Yeah, the, I mean, and looking up what little I did specifically about the conspiracy of of the actually the what, what did you call it the earlier? War the, of the theaters. The Mar well the Marlo Marlovian or uh, Marlo Mar the 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 Marlovian theory. Yeah, the Marlovian mm -hmm. conspiracy theory about you know whether or not Shakespeare actually wrote the plays that are you know attributed to him. It, um, if you believe in the Marlovian theory, you're called a Marlovian too. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's. I guess it's better than being a Whovian. <laughs> I think we just lost some subscribers. I didn't say it. <laughs> uh, so, so as we said, in the beginning of the movie, uh, Philip Henslow is being tortured by Hugh Fennyman over money he owes them. Uh, he promises that he will have a, a crowd-pleasing uh, play. He calls it a crowd tickler, a crowd tickler, by William Shakespeare to pay the debt. And the play at, <laughs> at this time is called Romeo and Ethel, the Pirate's Daughter. <laughs> Uh, and, and he describes the play to Fennyman by saying, mistaken identity, shipwreck, pirate king, a bit with a dog, and love triumphant. What does that sound like to you? Oh, and you're like, oh, Twelfth Night. Oh, it's Twelfth Night. That's oh, definitely okay. Twelfth Night. And it doesn't doesn't actually end up being Twelfth Night, but, you know, Twelfth Night kind of comes around in the end. It, it, it becomes cyclical, nicely they cyclical, deal, if you will. They deal a lot with, primarily with three plays in this. They yes. deal with R&J. Yes. They deal with um, Twelfth Night. Yes. And then they also do a lot with the two gentlemen of Verona. They do some with that. They also do a bit with Faustus. Yes, they do they outside do of Shakespeare's outside work. Outside of Shakespeare's work, they do a bit with Faustus. Mm -hmm. um, but References I, and allusions and things like that to the plays are primarily those three, I think. Yes. And then some with Faustus, like you said. Um, Henslow and Fennyman in that first scene actually talk about paying the writers and actors uh, a, a, quote, share of the profits. Uh, that Fennyman suggests, and uh, Fennyman, or rather um, uh, Henslow says, there's never any. And this is a reference to the modern-day film practice of promising actors a share of film profits and then through creative accounting making it appear as though the film did not actually turn a profit and then bilking the actors of any more money. Oh, that's nice. So that's actually still a pretty common practice. This play, actually, this play again, this movie actually does a, a lot of that. There's a lot, there are a lot of references and lines of dialogue that are commenting on today's um well, film industry, film industry, yeah, yeah mostly, more, more so than the theater industry. Yeah, I don't think this movie actually has a whole lot to say about, about the modern about the theater. modern theater, and it, like it's it's kind of a window into what theater looked like, maybe mm -hmm. at least on the outside. It's I think it's very um, uh, I don't know, just I, I, I'm losing the word, but um, outward only, only skin deep. It's Surf superficial. Su yes, superficial. That's the word. I think that it's kind of a superficial look at the Eliz Elizabethan theater, but it's an interesting one. I don't mm -hmm. think it has a lot to say about it, though. But it's not trying to. Let's let's be fair. We, we, we have to look at what a movie's goals are before we... I mean, it's called Shakespeare in Love. Sure. <laughs> it's, it is pretty outward about <laughs> what exactly it's about. And I do have criticisms about what the movie is actually about, because... Uh, ultimately, the center of this, at the center of this movie, is Shakespeare trying to write the play that becomes Romeo and Juliet. And I think that the thrust of the movie is his writing the play alongside developing this relationship with Gwyneth Paltrow's character, uh, Viola. And in developing their kind of more 
realistic, realistic-ish romance. More adult. More adult, yes. That's a that's a better way to put it. A more mature romance uh, than that that's in uh, Romeo and Juliet. I think they kind of missed the point of Romeo and Juliet. I don't um, know if I totally agree with that, but... We can talk about we'll it later. We'll talk but about that's, it later. Yeah, I, right now, I want to talk about this scene right here where Viola is with her nurse, which, of course, is obviously a reference to, to Romeo and, Juliet, Romeo and yes. Juliet, Juliet's nurse, who is uh, considered... One of, I mean, I consider her one of the greatest characters in Shakespeare's works, and a lot of people, I think, would agree with me. I mean, she's the nurse is fantastic. And I think this nurse does well, too. Um, I think as side characters go, Elizabeth kind of steals the show, especially Definitely. at the end of the movie. Well, I, the Academy agrees with you because she won an Oscar for six minutes of screen oh time. Oh, my gosh. She yeah. won an Oscar? <laughs> she won an Oscar for that. Holy shit. Yeah, Judy Dent, <laughs> well, she's, I mean, she, she's the boss. Well, I mean, she did kill it. <laughs> Yo, so, she did, definitely. And when we get to the end of the movie, the end of the movie, her she lines... Ha, she has my favorite line at in the, the entire end, movie. I mean, it's got to be one of my favorite lines in like all movies in ever. In movies ever. That's, yeah. It's, it's pretty great. It's pretty amazing. And... Anyways, though, um, as far as side characters go, Elizabeth steals it, but I think the nurse does a good job. I love her rocking chair moment when she's trying to hide them having sex and <laughs> and she's rocking in the chair. But in this Fanning scene, herself because she's, <laughs> she's either nervous little, or maybe... No, no, no she's, she's getting, getting a little she's hot. She's getting a little hot. <laughs> because she talks about in this scene with... I don't want to think about Imelda Staunton getting hot. Oh, no. You know who that is, right? No. You know, Imelda Staunton, who plays the nurse, she... Oh, Harry Potter fans are going to kill me. She plays the one of the defense against the dark arts teachers in the one who's really uppity, uppity, and no. in the pink. In oh the, she, yeah, she the one who's the, like the evil. Who suit. there's there's a whole movie about her being evil and coming. Sure, in. I think it's Goblet. Is it Goblet of Fire? I think she's that's the one she's in. I forget her character's name though. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> um. <laughs> anyways, though, so. So she she's talking to Viola about it, and she says something. Viola says something about not like if she doesn't try, find true love, then she'll just she'll just. And the nurse is like, become a nurse. So I mean, I think it's fair that she's getting a little hot there, right? She never she she, she, she pays lip service to maybe a great love that she never had in mm-hmm, her life, maybe. right? So. Women are still women, even after they're old. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, But that's not what I wanted to talk about with that scene. What I wanted to talk about is uh, I wanted to talk about Viola not liking Sylvia and the two gentlemen of Verona. Right. Because I have something to say about that. I think it's understandable. Viola outwardly says that she does not like Sylvia. Um, And... I think outwardly, on the surface, of course, she's commenting on the boy actor that Sylvia is played by. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that's her whole thing throughout this movie is that women should be playing the parts of women. Oh my gosh, what a concept. And that she thinks that in theater that we're not going to be able to see what these romantic heterosexual relationships are actually like unless we actually let women act out the part. And she proves her point by the end by doing just that. She, I get that, um, and I, you're, you're definitely right about that. I think that her desire to be an actress is in that scene it kind of comes up really um i don't know forcefully kind of sloppily I, it doesn't seem like one of her central motivations until she just says it outright because her central motivation seems to be that she wants a, a 
she wants poetry in her life. She wants a love in her life that is like poetry. And she's speaking of romance specifically. And then suddenly she's like, I want to be an actress. And the thing is, the part of her character that I can get behind, the part that I really like, is the part of her character that wants to be an actress. I don't really care about the part of her character that's in love with Shakespeare. Um, I care about the part of her character that wants to do this, even though she's told as a woman that she's not allowed to do this. Yeah, it and that she defies them and she does it anyways. I wish there was a, a nicer parallel, though, a nicer parallel between her her romantic uh, inclinations and her romantic motivations and her, her actual, you know, her physical motivations to becoming an actress. Because in that scene, they spell all of those things out. They, just, they mm-hmm. say all of them outright. And when she talks about the poetry and the love in her life, it's very, well poetic it's not prosaic at all it's the way she's explaining her motivations uh reaches me as an audience member in a in a in an emotional way on an Mm -hmm. emotional level and then she just kind of blurts out i want to be an actress and i'm like oh okay i mean i guess that's another thing that you want to do fine but i think that's the stronger thing sure sure um there is a nice parallel of her desire for poetry she says she wants poetry in her life and near the beginning of the movie uh when when henslow comes to meet uh shakespeare for the first time uh uh, Henslow insists that we'll speak in prose. I think that was uh, a really cute moment in it is. the movie where <laughs> he starts quoting, I think it's Hamlet. He's quoting it him. It's uh, Hamlet's letter to Ophelia, I yes, believe. Yes, that is correct. And doubt, uh, what is it? Doubt, this, doubt thou the stars are fire. Doubt thou that the sun doth move. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, so he's quoting Ham, what will be Hamlet at yes, him. Eventually. And and Henslow is like, speak prose. <laughs> and that's really funny. The next line to that, I think, is doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. I yes. think that's the next line yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, anyways, though, back to what I was really, really trying to say is I'm about sorry. the two the two gentlemen of Verona and the character of Sylvia. I think that if you're a fan of Shakespeare and you know anything about the play that we're talking about here then you know automatically who Viola is as a character because she doesn't like Sylvia. And what I mean by that is that Sylvia is, throughout most of the play, is a great heroine. And she she is someone that, you know, a person like me can really uh, be a fan of for most of the play. But then at the end of the play, in the final scene, she's about to be raped by the best friend of the man she's in love with, and she screams, Oh, heaven! And then says nothing else for the rest of the play, for the final scene of the play. Mm. And uh, when I say she says nothing else, it's not like things stop happening, because after that, she's rescued by the man she loves, and then the man she loves and her almost rapist make up and become Biffles again. And she still says nothing. And then her dad arrives and gives her away as a gift, and she still says nothing. And I think Shakespeare really dropped the ball here on that character, Mm -hmm. on the ending of a character that was pretty awesome before that. Um, And I think that Viola kind of points it out there when she, being a very strong female character in this movie, uh, says that she doesn't like Sylvia. Yeah. So. I think for someone who's familiar with the material, that's uh, a nice little extra bit. Of mm. of of character development for her, but if you don't know, I, I mean, it's good that it's not vital because if it were vital to understanding her character, then it would be kind of, it'd be kind of shitty. <laughs> I yeah, think. but I think it's a it's for a an nice otherwise little, ignorant audience member. Um, 
Uh, there are a lot of touches in this movie that are like that, where if you do know Shakespeare's works pretty well, then that it's not all just surface level stuff like the skull on the table in his room and stuff like that. It's not. There's a lot of uh, a deeper commentary about character and stuff that you can get from them talking about his characters and his plays. Yeah. So uh, we're at the theater in this scene, and uh, Henslow was casting actors who he owes debts to. Uh, specifically one we saw who had a, a, a really bad stutter. Hey, he pulls it together. <laughs> he does pull it together, which is an actual like phenomenon. Actual thing yeah, that actually that happens. happens yeah. That people with speech impediments, for whatever reason, uh, do often have the ability to speak or sing without a speech impediment. Yeah. When they're in front of an audience. Um, but he leaves Will to cast uh, Romeo, the only character that's left to cast, and... Uh, Viola, the the young lady who is at the palace watching the two gentlemen of Verona being performed for the queen, uh, she's here and she's dressed as a man, and uh, she introduces herself as uh, Thomas Kent. Yes, she does. A, a character named Thomas Kent, and uh, of course, in this scene, he is after hearing person after person after person audition using Marlowe's material specifically, a which scene has from been Faustus. like a little stab at him. It's a little repeatedly. thorn in his side. Mm-hmm. Like just before this, he he saw uh, Marlowe in a bar, and they were you know they had a drink together. They bought each other drinks, and, and we established that they were rivals of exactly. some sort. And Marlowe's like he's working on a play, and he's really got you know stuff going his way. And will the play's working I, on is the Masquerade of the Paris play, or the the play? I, I said it too. The movie calls. Shakespeare's character Will. So Will um, is kind of talking about how he's having trouble with with his play. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he goes to audition these <laughs> these actors, and they're all using Marlowe's material, and he's like, "God, this is just it's too much." And of course, Viola comes in, and she auditions with uh, with Shakespeare's material, right? And he's from kind of he, and he's kind of right from Verona, and uh, he's he's kind of awestruck with her performance. And wants to see her up close, and she runs away because, of course, she's in uh, a pretty bad disguise. And he chases her to the Thames River, where he's at right now, and he's gonna he's gonna chase her down. Uh, I think it's pretty funny though that the bar that they were at before, uh, everyone at that bar apparently has aspirations to be an actor because as soon as Henslow's like, we've, "We're having auditions right now," everyone leaves. It's actually not funny though. Well, it's I, but it's not I, funny I th- because well, I think it's funny because it's like. It's like London night or 1593 was like modern Los Angeles. <laughs> but it's but it's not though. But it's not because of what that bar is. That bar is the Rose Theater. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yes, it's this it's the same place place as the theater. It's uh don't don't you remember the scene at the end where um Fenny 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 Fennyman, Fennyman comes in and uh, it was the scene I was going to talk about later, but he comes in and he's like uh kegs and legs are open on the house. Right, yes. He owns it. And he also owns the Rose Theater because Henslow actually owned a property called the Little Rose, which housed a brothel. Right. And also what he later built, the Rose Theater. So like I said before, you can actually combine the characters of, of Henslow, of and, Henslow Fenniman. and Fennyman and like that's that's who he more or less was in real right. life. But yeah. that that's why, though. That's why they're all actors there because they're all actors there. Um. So the the Thomas Kent thing, uh, for one thing, I uh, Viola dressing up like a boy to get what she wants is very much a uh, uh, common trope, I guess, in Shakespearean plays. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I was reading some from a book called Gender and Play on the Shakespeare Stage by Michael Shapiro. 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 Mm-hmm. And he cites at least 80 characters who cross-dress in Shakespeare's works. In seven of his 38 surviving plays, women dress as young men. So it's a very common theme, and it makes sense that Viola would do this. Now, what's interesting is the name Thomas Kent that she goes I, by. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, because I have a theory about the name Thomas Kent, and it's a lot dumber than yours, so I want to hear yours <laughs> first. What, what, you want mine first? Yeah, you go first, and then I'll, and the punchline will be my shitty, stupid <laughs> interpretation of what that means. Okay. Well, the obvious one is, is Kent, is the second half of the name. That's the obvious one. Um, and if you if you Google it, then you're going to get a bunch of people on the web who are going to talk about, oh, of course, it's a reference to the Earl of Kent from uh, King Lear. Uh, I, I think that's fine, and that's probably true. But what I think is that the Thomas is more important. The Thomas, uh, Thomas Kent, the name Thomas is more important because I believe that it's a reference to Thomas Walsingham who Christopher Marlowe was living with at his death and who some historians believe he had a romantic relationship with. Now, we haven't really gone into it, and it makes more sense. My theory makes more sense when after we will have talked about the Marlowian theory. But if you don't know anything about it, then there are a, a pretty large number of people out there, Marlovians, who believe that Shakespeare um, didn't, Exist. Actually, yeah, like he was never. A, maybe he was a person, but but he there didn't are write the plays. Right, exactly. Um, there are a lot of different versions of this theory. There are a lot of different versions. Uh, there are people who say that there were many, many authors. That there was no way one person could have written all of the plays. Right. Um, but in the Marlovian theory specifically, what it is is they believe that Christopher Marlowe, this famous playwright who wrote uh, things such as like Doctor Faustus and. Um, uh, and a lot of other really famous stuff. Masquerade at Paris. Right. Stuff like that. Um, that actually he faked his death and he wrote all of the plays that we associate with Shakespeare. And I'll go into later, like if we have time, some of the reasons of proof behind that and such. But my point is, is that this movie, I almost said play again, this movie makes a point repeatedly to do that Maybe he's Christopher Marlowe thing, like right. again and again and in again. In this scene too, in this scene where they're mm-hmm. at this uh, at this party, which is very very reminiscent of again Romeo, Romeo and Juliet, Juliet when Romeo sees Juliet for the first time at uh, a party, uh, which is also immediately followed by the balcony scene, right? As this is, uh, and he tells uh, the man that she will soon be betrothed to uh Wessex, Lord Wessex mm-hmm. played by Colin Firth, who does a really good job. I yeah, really I hate I re- him. I hate him. Oh, I hate him too. I hate him hard. And that's as much the script but, as it is but his I, acting. But, but I also pity him. Like I, yes, I hate true. him and I pity I, him. I, I think pity him later. Really well. In the beginning I really just hate him. But yeah, uh he uh, will protects himself by saying that he is Christopher Marlowe when Which, he is caught uh kind of canoodling <laughs> with uh coveting his property oh, yes, as Wessex yes, states. Um, so did are you are you done with your your theory on what Thomas Kent means? Oh well, I mean, yeah, basically just that. If because the movie makes so many references to Shakespeare, eh, maybe he's Christopher Marlowe, maybe he's Christopher Marlowe, and then we see Shakespeare, who's maybe Christopher Marlowe, having a romantic relationship with someone named Thomas. I think it's a reference to Thomas uh, Thomas Walsingham. Are you ready for my earth shattering? <sighs> 
theory on where the name Thomas Kent comes from. I don't think from. I'll ever be ready. But... Thomas Kent is clearly a reference to Clark Kent because they're both <laughs> oh in disguise. <laughs> That's Good right. Job. Deep, deep film analysis here you on did Popcorn it. Poops every week. You did it. See, see you next week. That's you got it. you got an A minus. I think we can just end the show here. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and, and you'll have gotten an entire show's worth out of that one deft analysis oh. of uh, of a character. Um, now Wessex having a knife here in the scene where he threatens Shakespeare is, uh, and in the scene where he threatens Shakespeare and Shakespeare calls himself Christopher Marlowe. He do- he directly calls himself my. He says my name is Christopher Marlowe. Yeah. Um, uh, but Marlowe in history and also in this movie is uh, was stabbed to death if we believe that he actually died so the, they they make a few journeys up and down the Thames River I think am I pronouncing that right is it Thames or Thames I think it's Thames is it Thames uh, the, they, they journey up and down the Thames River in, in riverboats a few times throughout the movie uh, and that is actually taken from the puppet play Hero and Leander did you know that no which is written by the character Little Wit in Ben Jonson's Bartholomew Fair. Mm, one of the playwrights who is associated with the War of the Theaters. Right. They actually make another Ben Jonson reference earlier. I believe it's Burbage who makes uh, uh, who who mentions uh, Richard Crookback. Mm-hmm. No, no, is... no, no, no. Sh- uh, Shakespeare. Will. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. He mentions, mentions it. Uh, which is a Ben Jonson play. It is. But I think he was talking, I think in that scene, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think in that scene, though, he was talking about what, what play are they doing of mine. And and I think he was talking about uh, Richard III. Oh. Because that's who Richard Crookback yeah, is. Yeah, I knew, th- I knew that that's who Richard Crookback and was. And Richard III was written before, I'm almost positive it was written before Romeo and Juliet. I don't think the movie cares that much about when plays were written like in, But but in, I mean it does to the extent that it shows it shows like Verona being staged before Hamlet. Oh, I guess that's true. Um uh yes, I think I think it was I because I remember writing a note about it and I'm pretty sure that it, the way I interpreted it was him was him referencing his own play but kind of like making a comical a comical joke or something because Richard Crookback wasn't written until 1602 by Johnson. Yeah. And this movie is 1593. Oh, okay. So, and 1592 Richard the 3rd was written by Shakespeare. So I think he was making a, a joke about his own play. Oh, okay, I see. I, 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 I had heard, I think that Richard, the, the title Richard Crookback is, is the actually... Name. It's the name of Ben Johnson's play. It's the name of Ben Johnson's but play. But he didn't write oh, okay. until 1602. Interesting. Okay, I, I didn't realize that. I guess I did not do good enough research. <laughs> I guess one of us here is not on the ball as much as the other one. Hmm. Hmm. Well, one of us here went to school for it, and the other one didn't. <laughs> that so is, that that is very true. I'm 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 doing my best <laughs> uh, with my limited education. Um, limited, you know, other things too. But <laughs> did you just make a small dick joke? <laughs> no, actually, I was talking about your brain, but. <laughs> Limited mental capacity. Oh, well, that was a. Uh... <laughs> but you assumed. That was revealing. <laughs> um, it's pretty funny. The 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 boatman who who rose William Shakespeare says, "I had that Christopher Marlowe in my boat once," uh, which is, I think, probably a pretty cute little reference to how taxi drivers say, "You know, I had such and such famous person yeah. in my cab one time." Um. Yeah. Okay. So, at what point did you know what Viola's name was? 
What do you mean? At what point did you know what her name was in the movie? Because I don't think they, I I don't think they've even said it yet. Like um, we're over half an hour into the movie, or we're almost half an hour. We might be over half an hour into the movie. I did not. Point. I did not pay attention to that at all because I went into it knowing the names of the characters because I did a little research before I watched the movie. Okay. So that always bothers me because I. <clears throat> I didn't before I sat down to watch this and I didn't know her character's name. So I was listening because I was taking notes and listening for her character's name to come up so I could go and find, do a find and replace on all the times that I said the young woman, the young woman, this, the young woman, that, whatever, because mm-hmm. that's all I had known her as. And eventually I just had to look it up because it the movie took too long to say her name. Besides Shakespeare and maybe Henslow, I kind of felt that way about most of the characters, though. I kind of felt like I didn't get their names very much. Right. Like, right now we're talking to Ben Affleck's character, who's going to play Mercutio. Who goes by Ned, uh, but he is actually... what? What is his character's name? It's. It, I, I don't even remember. It was, uh, for, hem, Heming, it was something with an H, right? I think it's Edward. Oh, I don't know. It's I'm Edward totally someone, and I think base. it's someone from history too. I think it's, it was actually a very famous actor from. Oh, history. then it would be Edward. Uh, what is it? Edward Alley or Edward? Al- Edward Alley. I think that's what it is because it was at the. It was on the playbill at the very, very beginning, uh, of 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 the movie where the it kind of zooms down on the playbill uh, that's in the middle of the rows, and then we get to see the starting. Edward scene. Allen. Edward I'm Allen. Sure. Allen or Allen. Yes. Yeah, it's, yes. it's spelled funny. Uh, but yeah, that's who that's supposed to be, who is actually a, a very famous actor at yeah. the time, a- along with Richard Burbage. Yes, Richard. Well, Richard Burbage, you know, he was the he was the most important actor. Now, the movie calls him the most famous actor in Elizabethan times. Right. And I think that's a little presumptuous. He was by far the most famous actor in the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which is the company of actors that we associate with Shakespeare. Um, because later, at the end of this movie, they show him go on to uh, write for the Lord Chamberlain's men. Right. Almost exclusively. This little shit that's in this scene, he just introduces himself as John Webster. Uh, John Webster, of course, being a, a very famous playwright who is of the, I believe he's of the Jacob, Jacobian era of, of playwriting, which is post-Shakespearean. Well, he did kind of um, cross over a little bit, though. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, he, um, he, he does kind of have a central role in this movie. He does actually do things that affect the plot, but his initial, uh, introduction to the film, I thought was kind of strange. Like it felt just like a weird reason to throw John Webster into the movie. Well, and I felt like Shakespeare was kind of mean to him. I I did. He was sort of a dick. (laughs) That's so funny. The note I have here for the scene where he tells uh, John Webster to get out of the theater. The boy. The boy. Yeah, the boy, John Webster, uh, to get out of the theater. My note is, Will is kind of a dick, question mark? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it's true. He came off kind of harsh there. Yeah. I think think they needed like a second take of that one. Yeah. Um, I agree. uh, But but then John Webster talks about how he liked Shakespeare's Titus, Titus Andronicus. Yes. uh, And that when he writes plays, he's going to write with plenty of blood because that's the only writing. Right. Would you say Titus is probably Shakespeare's bloodiest? mm, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, Hamlet's Hamlet's only one major character is alive and at the end of the play everybody dies so well, and then there's there's Macbeth I guess but also again lots and lots of death <laughs> that's so true. that's true his tragedies are pretty Sha- tragical Shakespeare was really the George R.R. R. Martin of his day he was right he, was. he just didn't just know who was going to get indiscriminately. killed off <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but Webster though has 
uh, reputation and history for being a playwright with what Wiki quoted as unsparingly dark had a unsparingly dark vision of human nature where his tragedies present a horrific vision of mankind. And, Which translates to he liked blood mm-hmm. in, his, in his plays. Uh, a really famous quote from T.S. Eliot about Webster, I think, sums it up. He said, Webster always saw the skull beneath the skin. <laughs> so when we get That's all these little... That's an interesting little, I, li- I like right? that. Right? Isn't cool. it nice? Yeah. Uh, when we get all these little jibes and stuff where Webster says things like he liked the part where the woman got stabbed a lot, or at the end of the play he, he tells Queen Elizabeth he liked the part where the woman stabbed herself. Yeah. And Queen Elizabeth just kind of looks at him. <laughs> um, I I think that's not uh, unfounded at all. Um, so th- there's, they discuss what exactly is going to happen when Wessex and Viola are married, and the plan eventually becomes to to move them to Virginia, where he has tobacco plantations, uh, and and that's what he says at the party. He says he's got tobacco plantations in America, and. The funny thing is, is that there were actually neither tobacco plantations nor English colonies in America in the in the 1590s. Hmm. None at all. the The Roanoke colony at North Carolina, uh, which was called Virginia at the time, actually failed in 1587, and uh, and tobacco monoculture did not begin in Virginia until after 1607. Well, well, there. So it can't be perfect. Jessica, that's that's it's true. That is the moral. Well, I've told you already. The War of the Theaters wasn't going on at this time yet, uh, because the the what what was it called? The Ban of the Bishop or whatever hadn't happened yet till ninety nine. And also during this time, specifically between the years of I have it written down exactly, but I think it was fifteen ninety two to fifteen ninety four. The London theaters, including the Curtain, were closed because of the plague. They were closed. Yeah. It wasn't like, we'll open for a day and then we'll mm. show a couple. Like in this movie, they do this little thing where like <clears throat> they come in and they're like, okay, we're closing the rows because of the plague. And then they're like, well, it's okay. We'll open it for a while. And no, we're really closing it. But the curtain's still open. It's yeah. okay. And and it's like, no, man, when, when they close for the plague, it's because so many people have died and they want people to stop congregating together and spreading the plague, exactly. the bubonic plague. <laughs> it's, a, it's a preventative measure. Shakespeare's, one of his, his own son died from the plague, Hamnet. Oh, wow. Um, Hamnet? Uh-huh. He had a son named Hamnet? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. See, I don't know that much. I, I, I said this before. I don't know that much about Shakespeare as a man. Mm, well, again, like I said, I, I apologize to the listeners. We've got a great rumbling fart outside our window. <laughs> of Bosozoku, which is a, a Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> These really we, pitiful. We, we need to. We have to explain Bosozoku. Bosozoku are Japanese bikers uh, who who ride like you know, usually Japanese-made motorcycles like uh, you know Hondas and Yamaha and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're kind of pathetic. <laughs> like, yeah, they're I would pathetic like, I would like to see them come up against a hell because angel. <laughs> they ride these little crotch rockets and, yeah, yeah. and like they, uh, they wear clothing, really gaudy clothes. Yes. Like not leather, but like, like really tight clothing and like do their hair really. They like pompadours. Jelly. Yeah. Pompadours and spiked hair is popular and like really shiny windbreakery type. Uh-huh. And they either go really tight or really super baggy. 
And it's it's very much like the total opposite of an American biker, especially because they well, ride this teeny, point, um, teeny this tiny point, little crotch The rockets. image of American bikers is like older guys usually. Right. But then you've got shows, you know, shows like Sons of Anarchy in, you know, the popular culture. That, well, I haven't watched that, so. But it's basically the same thing. It's dudes with right, a lot like of facial big, hair. Big bearded guys. Big bearded guys that wear with, leather. Like, and, like all tatted up and, yeah. you know. Uh, lots of leather and the big burly men, and they look tough. And Japanese bosols who look like kids, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. So and definitely has nothing to do has with Shakespeare. Nothing to do with Shakespeare. Although if Shakespeare were alive today, he might write a comedic tragedy about a tragic comedy, if you will, about the lovelorn bosolzoku. Would he? He would. I don't think he would. Okay. Anyways, yes, uh, Shakespeare did have a son named Hamnet who had a twin sister named Judith. And he had another daughter named Susanna. But Hamnet died from the plague at 11 years old. It's very sad. You know, I'm, he, is so, he is sitting so close to Viola in this scene. They're, they're on this boat on the Thames. And he's reading a letter from Viola delivered by Thomas Kent, who is who she's dressed up as right now. And uh, he can't tell that it's her. He's sitting right in front of her. I, it's definitely a Clark Kent reference. But they they, de- they totally Kent. make fun of him, though, at the end of the scene. And they do. the the boat rower makes a joke and says that a even child a child could see. could see through the disguise. Um, the other the thing that I'm really amazed by in this scene and in other scenes is how her hair fits underneath that wig. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like a it's like what what what, what would you call that M- movie magic? Mm. That's I should, it's I should just coined that. <laughs> Does it not bother? Okay, so you, you say that the boatman at the end of the scene says that a child could see through the disguise, mm-hmm. but she was rehearsing with all the other actors who were right up in her face, and none of them noticed either. Yeah, but they, they I mean, they could just believe she's a really pretty boy. He knows what Viola looks like. He's seen a woman who looks exactly like her and who he's supposedly in love with. Supposedly. That's that's another issue. Supposedly he's in love with her. I Okay, should we talk about that? Should we talk about how I feel that this is a really one-sided love story? N- none of the Romeo and Juliet stuff, you know, not counting that and not counting how I feel that it totally misunderstands Romeo and Juliet in trying to build a parallel love story to its, you know, inception and creation. Um, Basically, Viola loves Shakespeare before she ever even knows what he looks like because his words speak to her. She loves his intelligence. She loves his eloquence. She loves the words that he writes because she feels like it speaks to the man that he is. Right. And then she meets him, and she even says this to her nurse. She she meets him, and she says, and like she says something along the lines of like, "Andy's handsome to boot." And it's like, "Oh wow, that's that's an extra lucky bonus that I'm in love with a guy that just happens to be handsome." That to me sounds like the start of a real relationship, sincere, a sincere adult romance. romance. Right. Uh, Shakespeare laments that he can't write love anymore because he needs a muse. Which is a fancy way to say he needs something to stick his dick in. Yes, true. So he goes to this this apothecary. Yeah, this apothecary who gives him a, a, a bangle, which is shaped like a snake uh, that he says was found in the temple of Psyche, 
uh, which if you know anything about Greek mythology, Psyche, of course, was a character in Greek mythology who had to overcome a lot of obstacles to be with her lover, Cupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that aside, he has to write his name on this bangle uh, or he has to write his name on a piece of paper, put it in the mouth of the snake uh, and give it to the a, a girl and that girl will dream of him and then he'll be able to write again. He gives it to Rosaline and then like like the next day it seems like I'm not sure how time exactly works in this movie but it seems like the next day he discovers Rosaline banging what's his name Tilney who is the master of the revels right. basically in charge of you know uh, master of the revels is is a is, was a commerce guy right like he yeah I think so was, so he was he's in charge of like businesses and shutting down theaters and opening up theaters he's the one who tries to make arrests and stuff like that when when people are caught being quote-unquote indecent for having uh, a woman on the stage in the theater which was you know unheard of in in elizabethan man she gives it up real fast right here she does but now the thing is she's an adult woman so she is and i think that it's clear that she's made up her mind i like that 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 doesn't bother me so much what bothers me is that the entire movie is framed as a really strong romance between these two characters when in actuality it feels really one-sided. I don't think Will ever gets to that point. There's a point in the movie where Viola actually says, uh, I don't I don't love you for your words anymore. I love you for you. Like that was the starting point and she has grown to love him as a person. It doesn't have to do with how he looks. It doesn't have to do with you know what he writes. It's because she is in love with him as a person. He never has that moment. He wants a muse. He wants a girlfriend, I guess, if you want to put it in in very you know simplistic and uh, maybe even kind of insulting terms. He wants a girlfriend because it helps him write to have. And he's a lover. married, so it's not like and he can have married. anything more than that. Exactly, and like that's something that comes out later. He's married, and he doesn't tell the woman that he's ostensibly in love with that he's actually has a wife somewhere else where he was you know banished from. Uh, we don't learn why, though, but in real life, apparently, Shakespeare was banished from, from his home for poaching. Uh, I that, don't even recall him being banished. Yeah, though. he was apparently banished from... I know that he visited his wife, that he he would live in Stratford for, like, a period out of every year, and that he retired there after, oh, interesting. after he finished yeah, theater. As I understand it, he, there was a time when he was actually banished from Stratford for poaching, and that's... I feel like I've heard something about that before. But, um, but yeah, anyway, I, does that not strike you as like remarkably one-sided that the movie never gives him a moment where he's like, I once, I, I thought I loved you because you were beautiful. Because that's really why he falls in love with her. He sees her and it's just like Romeo and Juliet. I think that that's the closest thing to... His love to for the, Thomas Kent is more sincere. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. He he loves Thomas Kent or he's... His attraction he's to Thomas Kent. He's attracted to Thomas Kent for his ability to... To perform act. to mm-hmm. act and to and to play his material, but he's not actually in love with Thomas Kent. He's in love with Viola because she's hot. Like he saw her at a party. He fell in love with her before she ever spoke a word to him. And well, and she she makes comment about that when they're on the boat together um, about how superficial he's kind of being about it. Yeah. Um, she well, there was a really nice little line where she. Uh, he starts talking about her boobs and she's like rolling her eyes and getting really irritated. Um, but, but then she also, she also is talking about, well, first they do this nice little parallel where he talks about her lips and her eyes. And it's very much a contrast to her husband to be's very poor description is a very loose way to call what he was saying about her beauty. 
Um, but then after after he starts talking about her boobs and stuff and she starts rolling her eyes, then she's just like, how how uh, is this any different? How can a woman live up to the things you're you're saying about her when maybe her eyes really don't look any different from mine right now mm-hmm. or mine do? Because obviously, as an audience, we know they aren't. They're the same ones. Yeah. And he's he's not mesmerized by Thomas Kent. So so she points that out. I think this movie paints paints Shakespeare a little too much like Romeo. Yeah. And that's not Impul- a very attractive not, no, thing. It's not attractive. It's he's he's impulsive and he's he's a creature of lust and not love. Right. Which is kind of the point of Romeo and Juliet. And if we're gonna we're eventually gonna talk about how this movie I feel I feel uh, inappropriately parallels the story of Romeo and Juliet because it feels like the movie doesn't actually understand Romeo and Juliet by doing that. Well, go ahead and talk about it. Okay, so I think that, and honestly, I feel like this is something that has come into public consciousness out of kind of the academic understanding of what Romeo and Juliet is trying to say as a play. Um, and I think that it's only been in the last 10 years or so. It's been the last 10 or 15 years. And because of the internet, honestly. Um, I think prior to that, and there is still kind of an uneducated understanding of Romeo and Juliet as the greatest love story ever told. Well, I mean, Or as among the greatest love stories ever told. I mean, you say that you think that the that the world as a whole has kind of come to realize that, oh, the academic perception of, of R&J is the correct one, and we've all been kind of silly um, for not realizing that, no, it's not a love story. It's a cautionary tale about young love. and Exactly. It's about lust. They're... And also primarily about family feuds, like yeah. about blood feuds between families. Uh, that... It's about maintaining grudges and maintaining feuds that characters in, like you never actually learn in Romeo and Juliet, if I remember correctly, you never actually learn the source of the the conflict between the Capulets and the Montagues. In history, like what, what it was back in the day that yeah. started it. And it goes so far back and I, I, I feel like the, the play itself actually pays lip service to this, if I remember it correctly. It's, it has been years since I've read uh, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, but no one in the play all either remembers exactly where the feud started. They just know it's something that they maintain. It's right. something that happens. It's just a thing that is. They take it for granted. Like, it, it just is a thing. So R&J is definitely talking about that. And the other thing it's definitely talking about is about... Um, uh, young love and how young love is impulse, impulsive and reckless and, and needs to be tempered and understood and you know time needs to you be know, taken. Don't kill yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like this, this you know this this surreptitious romance that develops between these two children and let's let's not mince words. They're they are children, children. especially um, Juliet. She's thirteen years yeah. old, and I think Romeo's like fifteen or something like something that. Something like that, and. From the time that they meet to the time that they kill or kill themselves for each other's sake, the time that has passed in the play is like three days. Yep. It's three days. That is not a love story. And I don't think Shakespeare intended it to be a love story. And, I, I, and academics agree. It's not a love story. Right. It is a cautionary tale. And this movie, you know... To its to its benefit or to its credit, this movie came out in 1998. Uh, the internet existed then, but it wasn't 
it wasn't what it is today. This, you know, the circulation of information uh, had not, I guess, made the round, so to speak, uh, as, as it has today. And I feel like at least academically and to people who care about this kind of thing through, you know, because of the Internet, <clears throat> they have been exposed to this idea that Romeo and Juliet is not actually a love story, uh, which I definitely subscribe to. Um, but this movie doesn't feel that way about Romeo and Juliet. But the thing about it, though, is that I I think that you're kind of misguided in believing that that popular opinion or or popular understanding of Romeo and Juliet has changed because I don't think it has. I think that you're surrounded by people and also by the kind of places that you go on the internet by people who would think the way that you think who were exposed to like the real meanings behind things sure. like Shakespearean plays and and I think that actually the majority of the population and the majority of popular media still uses Romeo and Juliet the way that they always have, which is, you know, incorrectly. I mean, even, even as, as recently, like the one horrible reference that pops into my head are the stupid fucking Twilight movies. One of the entire movies is it directly references Romeo and Juliet by having the, the, vampire and his girlfriend watch it in class um and and then like he, she he thinks she's dead and so he goes to kill himself like it obviously is drawing parallels and we're supposed to believe this is a positive relationship which you know for many other reasons is not a positive relationship because it's just as abusive and stupid as the 50 shades of gray fan fiction remake that uh uh was is now in theaters yeah so so popular, unbelievably popular, breaking box office records. Um, the source material for that was just as abusive as Fifty Shades of Grey is. So, uh, just like Romeo and Juliet, it actually isn't a positive relationship. Maybe they did draw a correct parallel. Maybe Stephanie Meyer knew what she was doing. Genius. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, really though, in popular media, they still use R and J as though it's it's. A, like a romance, okay. like it's a beautiful romance. That's fair. I will, I will concede that point. However, this is a best picture winner. If we're talking about taking one film, and this is the point of the Academy, and you can argue about whether or not the Academy succeeds at this or not, they, I definitely think that they don't. I think it's totally politicized and kind of gross and terrible. But it's the closest thing my kind has to a fucking Super Bowl, so I watch it. <laughs> That's and I and I kind You're of care kind. about it, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, I think if we're if we're trying to take the one movie that we should hold up as this is what this year has, this is the best that we got this year. This is the thing that challenged us the most. This is the thing that told us the most about ourselves. This is where we are right now as a people and as a culture, and this is how our entertainment reflects that. I think that that this misunderstanding on an academic level what Romeo and Juliet actually is makes this nothing more than just kind of populist you know junk like, i get what you're saying i get it i mean who i mean knows? i think that this the, the pl- i think that this play this movie i think this movie is is actually kind of facile and uh a little slight it's cute and you know we said that at the beginning and i think that that's the best uh and the most accurate compliment that you can pay to this ah, movie i just thought of another example is that it's cute what taylor swift Oh my God! Romeo and okay, Juliet. You're, no, you're right. right. You're right. It's painted as as a true love story, as a. It is, and, and she changes and the like, ending. 
as like a as like a flippant you know young love it we know it's a little silly because they're very young and it's their first love and whatever but it's still painted as a as a sure. love story as a positive love story okay I, there's something now that that's now that we've gotten that out there you know our listeners can debate all you want about our ideas of what how Romeo and Juliet parallels this and whether it's effective or not, whether the movie understands it or not. That's how I feel about it. This is how you because feel about we're it. we're trying to portray these characters as Shakespeare and Viola right. as as a positive romance, as a a romance that's not abusive, that's not. Um, damaging, or gross. But, but that it's a sincere romance, right? Now, the only thing that, gross and, about and this also, romance, and also that it's not lust, and also right because that the, it's a true adult romance. The movie doesn't want you to think that this is just you know uh, a fleeting tryst. This is something that's real and right. mature, and based on decisions made by adults. Now, my problem with believing that this is a real mature thing is that, like I said earlier, Shakespeare in this movie is way too Romeo. Yeah. I mean, they, even with the is. Rosaline thing at the beginning, right? But uh, not just that, but the apothecary, when he goes to him and the apothecary starts naming off all the all women, women that Shakespeare's been, yeah, been banging. Exactly. And you're just like, wow. I think, I think he said one of them's name was, uh, maybe it wasn't one of the women, but he said one of the, there was a name dropped in that scene that was Anne Hathaway. Oh, yeah? And I, Anne Hathaway wasn't, I don't, she wasn't a famous actress when this came out. No, Anne, Anne Hathaway was his wife. <laughs> right, okay. But I, I think, I, oh, okay, right, of course. <laughs> but I, I, I had never heard that before, so I thought that was really funny. Anne Hathaway was Shakespeare's wife, didn't know that. <laughs> I told you! Come on, mea culpa, mea culpa. I don't know that much about Shakespeare as a man. It's fine. God, throw me under the bus, why don't you? Well, I mean, what am I supposed <laughs> I, I, no, I threw to myself say? Under, to be fair, I threw myself under the bus. Um, let's talk about Shakespeare's sense of humor. It's okay. We spend most of these episodes with me being like, I don't know who that actor is. No, that's so. fair. So uh, we do the we do the one Shakespeare thing, and you can you know you can say no, no, that's wrong. <laughs> You're dumb and stupid. Oh, just one time, just one just time. Once. I get to prove you wrong. Just once, just once in our entire lives uh-huh. and in our entire yeah. relationship. Yeah. Just the one time, and this is it. Yep. And we've got it recorded. That's so important. It's. <laughs> You're going to have trouble when this podcast's over today. Okay. Um, let's talk about Shakespeare's sense of humor. Because I think that if it's if there's one thing that this movie, I think, kind of nails, and I think it's the one thing that if Shakespeare were alive and he watched this film, I think it's the thing that he would probably be the most proud of. And what's that? Is this movie, is, and it's it's occasional, and it comes in. in oh, we have cross-dressing again, by the way, we right do. here. And it comes in in brief glimpses, but I think that there is a sense of humor to this movie that I think would jive very much with with William Shakespeare. I think the so person. too. It's a lot of body humor. Yeah, um, there's a lot of like a lot of sex jokes. A lot and of stuff. sex jokes. I also think that there's a lot of missed opportunities to make this more ribald, make mm-hmm. this more uh, Shakespearean. Honestly, mm-hmm. like the like the comedy of William Shakespeare, because Shakespeare loved dick jokes. Oh yeah, he did. He loved him some dick jokes. I did. Um, in college, I I did a lot of theater, and I got to do a bunch of Shakespeare plays. And I was the fool in King Lear, which is typically a male part, and it was really fun to play it as a female, especially because the fool makes jokes about the size of King Lear's penis throughout yeah. that play. Oh yeah, and and that's totally common in Shakespearean. Uh, dialogue is to have these really raunchy things. People, I think, don't realize it because they get caught up in the language. Mm-hmm. But 
man, it is all over the place. Once you once you get over the the barrier of entry and you're you've read enough Shakespeare plays with footnotes that you kind of know the vocabulary and stuff, then you can see it and it's fantastic. So check this out. After their first, I think it's after their first night of lovemaking, uh, Shakespeare and Viola wake up and it's in the middle of the day. And Viola says that, you know, it's the middle of the day and they need to get up and, and it's the middle of the day. And they know this because the rooster crowed, right? The rooster crowed. Mm-hmm. So the word rooster is not actually recorded before 1772. 1772, almost 200 wow. years after this is, is set. And it is said to be an American coinage to avoid the associations of the older word, which is... Cock? Cock, exactly. So... Even today, apparently, the word rooster is still rarely used in the UK. It, they still use the word cock over there. Now, had Viola, instead of her line, which I think is something like, it is broad day, the rooster tells us so. Had she said, it is broad day, the, <laughs> the cock, cock tells, tells us, us so. so. What, I mean, that's what a, beautiful. What a wonderful opportunity for... opportunity. Well, then Will could come in and he could say something else and say, oh, yes, this it is the trouble of all men in the morning or something like that. Right. You know, like, yeah. come on, that's great, right? And then there's a scene where, uh, I, I guess it's the scene, a couple scenes after that, they go to rehearsal and, you know, they're stealing kisses from one another, you know, behind the curtains at, at rehearsal and stuff like that. And then at that night, Viola reads through the new pages of Romeo and Juliet with Will, uh, and she kind of at that point knows that she's the inspiration for the words. And they, you know, have sex again, and the film crosscuts between rehearsal and their lovemaking. And I think that a lot of the lines that that try to parallel, you know, the R&J lines that parallel the sex scene that are happening, I don't think most of them are very significant. I think it's mostly kind of a blanket, isn't sex plus Shakespeare super hot, right? I mean, but sex plus Shakespeare is super hot, so... But there are a few moments, few moments of brilliance, right? Where you cross-cut a sex scene with them rehearsing Shakespeare and saying some of the lines like mm-hmm. of from R and J as they're having sex. For example, my love is deep. Uh-huh. Yeah. The more I give to thee, the more I have. Uh-huh. Spoken, of course, by you know, uh by Will during And sex. then the one that comes after that where Oh, it would if Shakespeare the man were watching that scene go down, the lech that he was, he would have been fucking proud. I think. Well, the the line that I love the most is the one that comes after that, though, when um, when the nurse is calling for her and she's like, "Oh, anon, anon," and she's anon. getting pounded. Do you know what anon means? Uh, probably, but go ahead. It means soon. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> but but that even better than that is the line that he says after that, where he's like, he says, "Wait a bit, I'll come again." Yes, yeah, stay but a little, I will come again. Uh huh. Yep. Beautiful. It's, it's just great. it's just perfect. It is, it's the ice that last line, stay but a little, I will come again, is just the icing on the double entendre cake. It was really fantastic. And Shakespeare plus sex is super hot. Well, so a, a, agreed. But I I think that it only like there are moments where like it's kind of a blanket thing where it's just like, yes, sex and, and Romeo and Juliet lines are super hot together, fine. But there are a couple of moments in that scene where it just lined like the stars align or something, the planets yeah. align perfectly, and you're like, oh, that's Shakespeare. That's but the thing is, is, I also I also really loved the moment. One of my favorite moments was from after that sex scene that you're talking about, where she's lying in bed and he's asleep next to her, and she quotes from R and J, and she's talking about whether or not this is a dream. 
and and I just I don't know it just really struck me yeah very well yep <laughs> so um in this scene right here we're seeing Richard Burbage is having sex with Rosaline and she just broke the bangle that that Will gave her the the bang bangle of psyche which is going to, of course, incense Burbage because he's pulling out the little note right now and he can see that oh, no. it says William Shakespeare. My mistress is also banging Shakespeare. Yeah. Or was. Was, but. Um, and that incites him along with finding out that Shakespeare did not give him the play that he paid him for, even though he paid him like really pitifully for it. Uh but he gave it to Henslow instead. And so both of those things combined, it's just over the top. And the Lord Chamberlain's men are going to go and try to fuck up the Admiral's men. Now, do you know anything? Um, I mean, I assume you know about the Lord Chamberlain's men. Uh, I know that the Lord Chamberlain's men are the uh, the Rose actors, right? Was that right? No. Um, oh, no, that's the Admiral's men. The, the Lord Chamberlain's men are at the, the, curtain the curtain's in... actors, right? Uh, at the time in this movie. Right. The Admiral's men uh, are the ones who we're seeing mostly performing this play here uh, throughout this movie. The Lord Chamberlain's men, with their star Burbage, has been trying to get Shakespeare to come right for them during this movie, but Shakespeare needs 50 pounds to join them? Well, he he doesn't want to be... As I understand it, they don't really explain it well. I'm not sure exactly what his angle on it is. But if he has 50 pounds, I think he will be independent. A partner or something? He'll be independently wealthy enough that he doesn't have to do play writing for hire, that he can write the plays that he wants to write mm-hmm. and shop them around. But as it is, he's kind of living So he can't play go to, to play. write for the Lord Chamberlain's right. mentally he has that. Yeah. Um, we know our history, of course, and we know that Shakespeare will eventually go to write for them, uh, as he will at the end of the movie. Now, the thing is that we aren't certain who Shakespeare actually wrote and acted for, because he did do a lot of acting, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know who he actually wrote and acted for before the Lord's Chamberlain, Lord Chamberlain's men. Right. Possibly he worked with uh, Pembroke's men, who we know because of the earliest copy we have of Han- Henry VI, Part Three was written for... Pembroke's men. It's possible he worked for Derby's men. Probably not the Admiral's men as they have him doing in this movie, but again, whatever. Um, but what's interesting is that at the the end of this movie, right now the Admiral's men, the Lord Chamberlain's men are fighting, but at the end of this movie, we're going to see them come together. Right? The, the two playhouses are going to come together. Right to perform the play. Um, Which kind of acts in opposition to the parallel that the movie was kind of drawing before between the two houses or between the two playhouses as the two houses. Right, which I never really felt because it didn't have anything to do with the romance. I didn't either. It it wasn't centered on the romance. The only thing that you could really tie it to is that the queen favors Burbage's theater. Mm -hmm. She favors the Curtain Theater. And then, you know, of course... Viola is, but she's not even like, I don't know. She's not even on the queen's side, so to speak. Like Viola is totally separate from that. I don't, I also don't understand why exactly Wessex needs the queen's permission to marry. Well, he's, he must be related to her. Oh, because that, that is what would, you know, connect him to R and J. Okay. Because, um, in R and J, uh, 
You know, I did want to talk about that scene at the palace. At the palace, um, the first thing that happens is that Will tells Wessex that Marlowe has been visiting the house, and then Viola is presented to the queen, who drills her about her time at the palace seeing plays, because she goes there a lot. She Mm -hmm. loves plays. We talked about that before. The queen says that the playwrights cannot tell us about the true nature of love. That's a thing that comes out of her mouth. Uh, and then Wessex turns it into a wager, and Will, who's there in disguise, in a really terrible disguise, I, I, I'd also like to say. Yeah, well, the Queen notices. So. The Queen notices, but Wessex doesn't. I don't think I don't think Colin Firth is really playing Wessex as a super dumbass, uh, but he must. I, honestly, I feel like there's only like one mistaken identity or one terrible disguise plot. There's only room for one of those in this movie. And we've already got it with Thomas Kent. Yeah, there was really no reason for him to go to that scene. I really felt like there there wasn't any reason. Is there information? I mean, the pound and stuff, like the wager they do about the 50 pounds, I guess he had. But why did he need to know about it? I don't, I don't. I don't what, know. What I happens in that scene that he needs to know? Well, I mean, the, he he does he does tell Wessex that Marlowe has been visiting the house, which kind of comes back to haunt him later, right? In but a he way. already did that though when he called himself Christopher Marlowe. Yeah, exactly. So it's, again, it's I really strange. don't think it was necessary. But for anyway, him to the go. Queen witnesses the wager. The Queen approves of Wessex and Viola's marriage, but says he's a fool because she's been deflowered. Now, first thing, um, Judy Dench is fucking amazing as the Queen, mm-hmm. and she's great in this scene. Uh, second thing. I think that I was talking about how the movie incorrectly or or inappropriately parallels R and J, and I think that this is the scene, not the scene we're watching, but that scene because I'm you know I'm backtracking. The movie starts digging a hole here that I don't think it ever actually gets out of, because the queen actually starts talking, also unprompted, mind you. She was not prompted to start talking about the playwright's ability to convey love. That was never part mm-hmm. of the discussion. She just starts saying it for no good reason. Uh, about a playwright's ability to write about love, she creates three categories. She says that when a playwright writes about love, they make it pretty, they make it comical, comical, or they make it lust. R&J, as we've said, fits nicely into that last category. It's lust. It's not love. And public opinion, at least as of late, and especially academic opinion, seems to agree with that. The movie is going to try to disprove this with the play that Will is writing, which is, of course, R&J, but it never actually works. And I think that that's how we know for sure that the play is doing this because it comes out of the Queen's mouth. The movie is trying to parallel R&J with this. Like, it's it's, it's absolutely unrefutable, right? Yes, of course. Um, also, her telling Wessex that, that Viola's been deflowered, I don't. That, somehow that doesn't really sit right with me. Because, yeah. Well, like for one thing, how does she know? I mean, come on. She's like well, a woman knows, well, and, and I'm like, no, come on. Like she she says that she says uh, that she has been plucked. That's how she puts it, and she says it takes a woman to know it. And my question is, does it also take a woman to throw another woman under the bus for owning sexual agency of her own fucking body? Yeah. I mean, the yeah, queen true. the queen may be an asshole, but that was a real dick move. Yeah, it was a real dick move, and and. Apparently, Wessex doesn't care, so because he marries her anyways, which, of course, would never happen back in the day. Like, if you found out that the person you were betrothed to, the female you right. were betrothed to, come on, let's be real here. Guys could screw whoever they wanted and and get away with it. But um, if the woman had had sex before, then there was no way in hell he was going to marry her. I mean, we're painting Wessex as a really desperate character, but that's extremely desperate. Yeah. Uh, kind of unbelievably desperate. Um. 
But yeah, I agree. Again, another really dick move by a character that I don't think is a dick. Like the Shakespeare being really mean to Webster. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's it's but it's it's not like a through line. It's just like these weird moments Moment. where you're like that. And you're like, that well, doesn't that fit. Didn't go. That's right there. that's kind of a soggy puzzle piece, isn't it? It doesn't quite fit with the rest um, of them. But what I was saying before, before we started talking about that, was the the two playhouses coming together. The Admiral's sure, men and yes. the Lord Chamberlain's men are going to come together here at the end of this movie and and join hands against the tyrants that are keeping down theater. And uh, they're they're going to put on the show anyways. But but what I think is interesting about that is that that does in a way parallel the war of the theaters that we were talking about earlier, where um, eventually the playwrights, uh, including we were talking about uh, Ben Johnson, John Marston, Thomas Decker, those people, eventually the playwrights collaborated on a play together called Eastward Ho that pissed off King James, who would eventually be the sponsor for the Lord Chamberlain's men who Shakespeare wrote for. So again, Shakespeare really didn't have a part to play in the War of the Theaters because... Um, okay, he the I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but Wessex says, spare me, dear ghost here. Spare me for the love of Christ, spare me. I'm probably wrong. Is that a line from Hamlet? I think it's got to be referencing Hamlet when he sees... And or mm, is spare me dear ghost a line from Hamlet? Sure. Okay, but um, but what I was talking about though was was uh the playwrights coming together and writing this play in the War of the Theaters. Mm-hmm. The playwrights who were rivals, they came together and wrote this play that pissed off King James so much that it got a bunch of them sent to jail. Um. So so it's interesting though that they do kind of parallel that in the way with with the two houses coming together to work on this this play. Yeah. And then having troops come in as though they're going to arrest people. Mhm. Um which they don't in the end. So let's catch up on the story because we're we've we've fallen behind on the story. Uh the most recent development is that after Will has told Wessex that uh that he is Christopher Marlowe to try to protect himself uh you know from visiting Viola at night uh all the time uh they come to learn that Christopher Marlowe has been killed in a tavern mm-hmm. somewhere and uh and Will feels extreme guilt about this because and spends all night praying in the church and then the not next just day, praying but like uh What's the right word? Flat uh, flagellation. Oh yeah, um, right where he's like beating himself. Yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yep, I think that's right. Um, but he spends all night in the church doing that, and then the next day, Wessex on the way to church, or rather, Viola's on the way to church, and Wessex crosses her path, and he's like, "Oh, you're going to mourn because you know your lover is dead," and he doesn't say, of course, the name Christopher Marlowe, but he's and like, then, "Oh, you're in a very RNJ moment." She assumes that. Shakespeare is, is dead. dead. Yeah, Shakespeare is dead. So she goes to the church to mourn, and Shakespeare comes out, and Wessex is like, spare me, dear ghost, and runs away, and then she runs after him. And she's like, oh, my God, my love, you're alive. Now, they're behind, the, or they're by the river at this point, and, and Will is speaking very, very highly of Mar- uh, Marlowe as a writer. And uh, Viola says, this is the scene where she says that she loves Will for more than his writing. This mm-hmm. is the moment. Uh, and the first thing I wanted to say about this scene is that I wonder if the screenwriter himself is is a Marlovian. I wonder that. Well, I mean, because I, I, 
I didn't expect this when I first watched this. I didn't expect this movie to entertain that notion so much. And it's but the they kind do of, again and again they and do. again. They keep bringing it up, well, and it's more than just like a cute little nod. Like they keep like when he calls stuff. himself Marlo and stuff like that. It's a cute little nod. But in that scene, um, they he wear it out. He says directly that Titus had Marlo's touch, and Henry the Sixth uh, was a house built on his foundation. Exactly. And exactly. now, however, though that's that's pretty common belief though it's pretty common among academics that Shakespeare was greatly influenced by Marlowe greatly influenced by Marlowe and not only that but Shakespeare uh, much like you know the Brothers Grimm uh, were was writing stories based on skeletons of, of older or, stories, right, oral tradition. Uh, Romeo and Juliet. He was not the first person to pen it. Of obviously. course, of course. Um, I, I, there, there's a much older Greek tragedy. That, the the I want the full name. I don't um, know. The tragical history of Romeo and Juliet. Yes. By Arthur Brooke, 1562. It was an Italian narrative okay, poem. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then there's a prose version in 1567 included in a book of stories by William Painter called The Palace of Pleasures. Right, exactly. So, I mean, and Shakespeare was working from, actually sounds like things that were already published, but he was also working from a lot of oral tradition. But that's, I mean, the fact that he was inspired by and wrote versions of stories that were already Of a around, contemporary. Right, exactly, of, of a contemporary. That's, you know... I don't think that's so unlike what we do today, and it was also yeah. very common practice then. And it's not; it, I don't think it, it 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 is a detriment to Shakespeare's legacy. Well, and also back in in this day, and it's been a few more than a few years since my my uh, courses on Shakespeare, so I don't remember exactly what I'm about to talk about right now. But as I recall, there was a lot of play uh, stealing back then too. Yeah. yeah. That it was very, very common practice that they didn't write the plays down. Well, they didn't write them down and put them together because they didn't want people to take them. So the uh, the actors had to memorize right. them immediately. Intellectual property rights and things like that and copyright wasn't wasn't right, very strongly exactly. enforced. And I don't know that it really even existed until like a, a hundred years after Shakespeare's time. I mean, maybe it did in a way, in a form, but... No. They didn't like actors. They didn't get a whole copy of the play. They they only got their part. Right. They only got their lines, um, and and that was in large part due to not wanting anyone to have a whole copy of the play so that they couldn't steal She's it. She's holding a manuscript that's supposed to be all of Romeo and Juliet. Is it supposed to be just her lines, like you just said? Because it seems awfully small <laughs> to be all of R and J. Well, I do know that uh, the way things were printed back then, the it's called a, a quarto, I think. Uh-huh. I'm probably really mispronouncing it. Um, but the way they were printed and the way papers were folded, they would they would do like multiple pages on on a page and then fold oh, okay. it around and stuff. But again, yes, it still does look really small. The the other thing I wanted to talk about on that scene by the river, uh, when she confesses or that she says that she loves Will for more than his writing, <clears throat> she says this, but he doesn't really say anything to her. And he never does throughout the rest of the movie that would in- indicate. He has sex with her some more. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, Oh, he gives it to her for sure. But I mean, it, him not saying anything is basically him saying, well, thank you, but I still love you cause you're hot. Yeah. True. Man, I can't get it over is, that. No, I agree. I agree. I it's didn't half, feel it from him. It is half of a great love story. I didn't it's feel half it from of him. One. I felt like it was for her. 
and that she's the more mature one in the end because she's the one who leaves. And I still feel like he was kind of being Romeo-ish at the end. Yeah, for sure. Like even at the end and he's like all distraught and broken and everything because she's leaving and she's the one who's being strong about it and who's just like, look, this was never going to be anything and we both knew that. And he's still kind of being a child about it. And what does it. that teach us? Does it teach us anything about the nature of love? Does it teach us anything about the things that this movie is? Well, I think that it does. That say? it does teach us something that's opposite of Romeo and Juliet. I think it teaches us teaches us that that love isn't a, a one time thing. It isn't a one shot and you're done. That that love is something that that can be mistaken. Uh, that you can mistake love for for lust and things like that, and that so in a way, I guess it's it can it can I think be it definitely a compa- builds on piece to Romeo and Juliet. I think oh, that it's an it's a more adult version of that. I don't think it fails in that regard. Um, I did want to going back to the Marlowe stuff uh, and that scene by the river. Um, he also one of the lines that is really Marlovian is him saying, "I would exchange all my place to come for all of his to never come." And it's kind of like, well, you know, some people sort of believe that mm-hmm. that's what happened. Yeah. Um, she also calls her love to him calf love. Did you did you catch that one? Yeah. What is what is that? Like is it, like baby like cow. Ba- yeah. Like a like a childish. Yeah. Puppy love. Yeah. Yeah. I think an, she's really she recognizes it. She recognizes it, but I think that she shouldn't be the one that's saying that. I think that it's her love is more real. I think her than love is more. Love. Mature, but again, we're only through. talking about three weeks here, two weeks. It's true, but she's, I mean, even as she is, she understands the nature of her feelings toward him, and she's also experienced a, a kind of an evolution of her feelings for him. She's gone from someone who loved him for this specific thing and then came to learn that he's actually a pretty good looking guy. And then they start their romantic affair. And now it's moved beyond that very first thing that attracted to him that, that were, that was attractive to her as a person. And now she just loves him for him. Like, I think that I that's, get, I get what you're saying. It's the, I mean, I think that's how love works. You know I what I if, do love uh, about her? I love that she recognizes she's going to marry a man who she doesn't give a shit about and who she's probably going to hate. Um, and that she's going to be married to him and that's her life. And I love that she chooses to uh, lose her virginity to someone that she's actually attracted to yeah. and has romantic feeling towards. Yep. And then the queen throws her under the bus. So shitty. So shitty, right? So That's shitty. too bad. Uh, in this scene right here, uh, Wessex has arrived at the Rose during rehearsals, and he challenges Will to a duel, and they're fighting right now. And then eventually Will will overcome him, uh, and he is going to accuse him of murdering Kit, who is Christopher Marlowe. Uh, and then Ned, played by Ben Affleck, uh, corrects Will and says that Marlowe died in an average tavern brawl that Wessex subsequently celebrated, which, you know, made Will feel like he was responsible for it, um, especially because he told him that he was Christopher Marlowe and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. made yeah. Wessex believe that it was Christopher Marlowe who was having an affair now, with his wife-to-be. Um, but yeah, it, it, one thing that I was uh, curious about, so Tilney is about to arrive. <clears throat> here he is right here. And he reveals, he's going to reveal that Viola is a woman and then closes the theater for indecency, right? Right. Viola's going to leave and she'll apologize to everybody. So what I want to know is, were Tilney and Wessex working together at any point? I guess so. I guess that's that's what we're made to believe. 
because of this? I mean, it was explained earlier by by Richard Burbage that the master of the rebels, who is Tilney, favors us. That was that was the line, and then uh, and of course when he's saying us, he's referring to the Curtain Theater. And when he- <clears throat> when Henslow asks what favor Tilney receives from them, uh, then the question is kind of diverted. And I'm I'm wondering, is it because he's having sex with Rosaline at that point? Because Tilney wants to continue that, and that's why he favors the Curtain Theater. Um, I mean, I, I suppose he could do that anyway without allegiance to the theater, but there's another thing that kind of ties it back in uh, toward the beginning of the movie when Will finds Tilney and Rosaline having sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tilney says something along the lines of he had to open up the theaters because Burbage was staying at home all day, and if Burbage is staying at home all day, he can't have sex with Rosaline, right? So, you know, the master of the rebels, Tilney, Opens up the theaters so Burbage can go to work. Because Rosaline is married to Burbage, is that uh, right? She says something about he keeps her or something. Yeah, I think they live together or something. I don't know. I'm, I, they don't really explain it very it's, clearly. It's not super important, but it, I, I don't know. It's there's some there's some weird lines being drawn that I think are kind of indistinct and, and um, not clear. Uh. One of the things I want to comment about before we get too far away, in history, we know that Marlowe was stabbed yes. uh, to death. And we know who he was stabbed by. Uh, but what we don't know is why. We don't know why Marlowe was killed. Now, this movie goes ahead and just tells us it was it was just a stupid tavern brawl. It was just over a bill. And they make a joke about it being a billing of, like, you know, him not being no Lana on, for a play he was in or something like that. Um, but... One of the theories, again, going back to my idea of the Thomas Kent thing, one of the theories is that it could have been jealousy on the part of Marlowe's wife for the relationship, the possibly romantic relationship, that Marlowe had with her husband, Thomas Walsingham. Oh, okay. That's one of the theories of why he was killed, as to why he was killed. Oh, you know Wabash, the the character in this who stutters? Yeah. Is that that, uh, uh, the Weasley father? from Harry Potter. Oh, I don't know, maybe. I think it is. I think it is. I think that's him. Which means that both Imelda Staunton and we're, who we're seeing right now and uh and the Weasley dad, it's kind of a, a Harry Potter reunion before Harry Potter was a thing. Oh, so. you know what? The main uh the the male lead, Joseph Fiennes, who plays uh who plays William Shakespeare. He is the brother of Rafe Fiennes, who plays Voldemort. Did you know that? No, I did not. That's kind of interesting. I guess there are. I was actually a little concerned before doing this uh, episode that I was going to mispronounce Joseph Fiennes' name because his brother, Rafe Fiennes, Rafe Fiennes' name is is spelled like Ralph. Uh And if you look at his name, you say, well, that's Ralph. His name is Ralph. And their last name is spelled like F-I-E-N-N-E-S, so it could be like Fiennes or something like that, but it's Fiennes. So, not Ralph Fiennes, Ray Fiennes. I was concerned that I would mispronounce Joseph's name because it looks like Joseph, but who fucking knows? It could be Jose. Jose Fiennes. By the way, I think the spare me thing is just this movie. The The line itself, spare me, dear dear ghost. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously alluding to Hamlet or or one of the many other plays that has a ghost in it. Sure. Um, But uh, I think it's the quote itself is just from this movie. Yeah. So the the admiral's uh, men here, the admiral's men, of course, being the uh, the Rose uh, 
company. Theater, yeah, yes. the Rose Theater Company. Uh, and they're lamenting the closing of the theater. Uh, Burbage is here with his actors, and he says that Tilney hates all actors, which is, a, I think, a, a new development that we could probably see in his character. True. Um, well, and like I said, in the real war of theaters, these guys were being jailed and stuff pretty right. re- like uh, commonly. They yeah, were yeah. being jailed and stuff for the plays that they wrote and the things that they did. Oh, that's the that's the thing with Marlowe um, that that we never got into. But the Marlovian theory about Christopher Marlowe faking his death and actually being the person who wrote all of the Shakespeare plays and poems that we recognize yeah. today. Uh, so the things that are commonly referenced for a proof of that is that for one there are many strange surroundings uh, strange things surrounding Marlowe's death in 1593 which is the correct year for this play also by the way um, th- this is the correct year for the writing of R&J too it's is it right really? it's right in the middle they say 1592 to 1594 I believe oh, or 1595 okay. Okay. they don't know exactly when so it's right smack in the middle um, but so uh, when Marlowe died in 1593 uh, the things surrounding his death were very strange, and those strange things included a warrant for his oh, arrest. Uh, the the shot that we just saw of uh, of Richard Delesseps, uh, Viola's father, writing mm-hmm. that was our hint. That was oh. our hint for this week. Anybody so I need guess to it? yes, actually, we had uh, one person on Facebook guess it, uh, who goes by Colonist Mumu on on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, not his real name, but that's all I'm going to say. Uh, and he, he doesn't want to plug anything, but he wants to remind everyone that old men aren't exempt from washing their hands after number twos at school. Okay, and, and that, that's, I, that's you know true. It's true, but it's a, it's an ALT thing. If you're an ALT in Japan, you see all sorts of really strange thing. And I, I have to say that. I would agree with this. I've I've seen this. I've seen old men come out of the bathroom after taking the big dump, and they don't wash their hands. That's gross. And that's really gross. <laughs> that's really gross. Uh, Thanks for sharing. Sam Lower, uh, who can be found on Twitter, at Sam Lower. Uh, he guessed it, but he didn't have a plug. He didn't have anything he wanted us to mention. But I have to issue an apology. Last week, mm. we, missed miss- some, we missed somebody. What? Who who guessed who guessed the hint last week? Oh, I know. And they 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 commented. That means you miss somebody. I actually. miss somebody. That's me. Don't it's say not, we. It's, it's it's me. <laughs> I, and I apologize. I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but Ian Sokoluski or so- Sokoluski Sokoluski maybe. I'm not, I'm not sure. He wants us to mention his his gothic photography and illustration website, uh, which can be found at IanTheComicArtist.com. And I looked at some of his stuff on there, and it's really good. It's cool. really good stuff. So uh, go check, go it check out. out his his website. And, and I apologize for missing you last week, man. Douchebag. <laughs> um. Anyway, so I was talking about Mar- the proof behind the Marlovian theory and Marlowe's death. Uh, <clears throat> so his death in 1593, there were really strange things around it, including a warrant for his arrest only a couple days before his death. And the warrant was because of something involving blasphemy, blasphemy and vile heretical concepts in a manuscript of his. So it's obvious his work and fame as a playwright, as well as his life, was suddenly in jeopardy. And that gave him in Marlovian's opinions, a good cause to disappear and come back as a different playwright. Most scholars agree, Marlovians or not, that there is great influence from Marlowe in many of Shakespeare's works. And the other thing that people talk about, the one of the bigger ones, is that the men were born only two months apart, but the name William Shakespeare never appears connected to any literature till Venus and Andonis only a week or two after Marlowe's death. Oh, wow. Right? 
That's interesting. Pretty convincing stuff. It is. And I've read some of that stuff and it, it does kind of reek of conspiracy theory. It does. But... And I don't ascribe, subscribe to it because uh, if nothing else, then I'm a romantic and I love the idea that someone could just be a genius and just write a bajillion fucking masterpieces in yeah. the span of just a few years, really. He was one of the most prolific writers ever. He, yes. I, I, I don't know the exact number, but he wrote. Well, we have 38 surviving plays. Right. He wrote tons and, sonnets and tons of, glore. of stuff. So, yeah. Actually, uh, Simon Callow, I, I've got some trivia here. Simon Callow was originally set uh, to play Philip Henslow. Simon Callow actually uh, ended up playing Tilney, um, but he was supposed to play uh, Philip Henslow. Uh, the project was shut down for some time and then reactivated, and Jeffrey Rush was cast as Henslow, and Callow was then offered the smaller but still key role of Tilney, the Master of the Rebels. Um, <clears throat> also, uh, after this film's uh, five credited producers received Oscars for the Best Picture. That's five credited producers. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences changed the rules the following year, beginning with the 1999 awards. A maximum of three credited producers can be nominated to receive Best Picture statuettes, even if more than three are credited on, on screen. So, this restriction was apparently loosely, uh, or was loosened slightly, beginning with the 80th uh, awards ceremony, which was in 2007, when the following was added to the rules cover uh, covering the award for best picture. Quote: The producers' branch executive committee committee, ha- committee has the right, in what it determines to be a rare and extraordinary circumstance, to name any additional qualified producer as a nominee. Five producers on a project is a lot, though. Yeah, it is. That's that's crazy. That 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 usually. When there's that many producers on a project, it usually means that there's been some trouble along the way and they've had to find money somewhere else or they've owed a favor to somebody. It usually is a sign that the production was troubled at some point and they needed help. And that's why a lot of people ended up with producers' credits. So uh, Viola got married, as she was told to do, but then she goes on to watch the play anyways because she's a cool character and that's what she cares about. She's her own lady and she's got. And she's already married now, so what the hell else are they going to do to her? So, um, so she, and then of course she's going to jump at the opportunity to be in the play when there is an opportunity. They're performing this at the Curtain right now. The Curtain was the main venue of the Lord Chamberlain's Men from 1597 to 1599. uh, After they were forced to leave the theater, very clever name for their previous theater. Yeah. uh, When it closed in 1596. Uh, R&J was there um, at the curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, it was performed there, but it, but I don't think Shakespeare actually ever played Romeo. I I feel like I read he did play something. he did he did he did play a lot of characters in, in his, his plays. own plays. I don't remember. I took some notes about it. I love I love the lines that they do a bunch of plays on words here um, with like theater cliches and stuff. Mm-hmm. Where, like, I love the line where Henslow goes, the show must, you know, and Shakespeare goes, go on. Yeah, it's this line right here. The show must, you know, go on. That is a line that, like, it it took me aback. And I was like, did William Goldman write this screenplay? Because that is a line that would come right out of something like The Princess Bride. Yeah, true. It is a super Princess Bride-y line. Oh, Princess Bride. Um, You got to do it. We got to do it well, one of these days. It's probably my favorite movie of all time. So. Oh, well, then we'll definitely so do it. So, of course, we'll do it one day. But um, we haven't actually talked about who did write this movie. No, we haven't. So, Mark Norman, 
is one of the screenwriters for this. I guess he wrote The Aviator and Cutthroat Island. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen either of those. Oh, he wrote Cutthroat Island? Yeah, I don't know what that is. It is a notoriously bad movie. Well, uh, then that makes a little more sense as to why apparently when the first person who was set to direct this movie got their hands on the script... They were like, hmm. This is dog shit. And then they hired Tom Stoppard to come and fix it up. And if you don't know Tom Stoppard, you probably do know Tom Stoppard. He's a playwright who is most famously known for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes. In in 1966, Mm -hmm. which is just incredible. If you've never seen it, then you really should. And if you still can't find somewhere to see it, then you should at least read it, especially if you're a fan of Shakespeare at all, because it's hilarious and just wonderful. Um, He also wrote a lot of other famous stuff like Arcadia and Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. But Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead are is definitely one of my favorite plays of all time. So. Mm. So it's no surprise that his hand shows through in this in this movie, and yeah. we have some really great lines. And- well, I think Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Was it, it has kind of stood the test of time? Yeah. Uh, not not that it's been it's not very old, you know, nineteen sixty six. But I think it stood the test of time because it does capture uh, that the feeling of Shakespeare, it captures it in its language and in its narrative and in its sense of humor. I think that it's all very, it is very Shakespearean. Like, to, to But say I really it. wouldn't call this movie absurdist or existential no. or anything like that. No. And that's definitely what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes. Is I, known for. I, I, I definitely agree with that, but I do think that this, this does feel like, and I guess it should. It's it's populist cinema. This feels like Shakespeare light. It does. It's like, it absolutely it's like, does. It's diet I mean, the mug on the on the the tabletop next to him writing stuff is. I mean, it's pretty. That image is pretty like concise with sort of the way this movie <laughs> it's, it's feels. It's the central image of the movie. <laughs> it's true because you know it's a little bit. It is light. It's popcorny. Um. Which I don't have a problem with. I'm not saying that that makes it bad at all. I think that expanding some... I think far too often we believe that things have to be highly intelligent and complex and difficult to understand for it to be good. And that's bullshit. That's what that is. It's it's bullshit. And this has been said before by people much, much smarter than me. Um, But the thing about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare writing in his time... He wasn't writing like great academic works. He wasn't gr- writing right. great intelligent works. He was writing things that play to the cheap seats. No, obviously theater was theater was like low life back then. <laughs> and I mean, let's be real, the people in Elizabethan times were not better educated than we are. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, come on, like they didn't even go to formal school the way that we have to. Right. It's the the language in Shakespeare's plays because of the way language has changed. It's like saying that um it's like reading a book in half Spanish and half English and you don't know any Spanish and you're like that was really hard to read. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's what saying that a Shakespeare a Shakespearean play it's not that it's, it's not that it's smarter than you. It's just old. It's just written in a language yeah. that we don't use 
the way that we used to. It's still English, of course, but it's a different English than what we use. When you get into and when when you get over the whole the language of Shakespeare, when you get past that and you're able to diagram his narratives and you're able to analyze his characters and diagram characters and find themes and messages and meaning and symbolism and all of the things that he worked with in his plays, when you're able to see that stuff, that's when you can see how he was and might still be the greatest writer who of has all ever time. lived. Yes. Yeah. And that's not, I know that people, uh, I was an English major, so come on, I met a lot of people who were like, Shakespeare's my favorite author. Yeah. And right, like, I mean, the thing about that, though, is that on one hand, you roll your eyes, and then on the other hand, you're like, well, I mean, if you want your favorite author to be probably the greatest author that ever existed, then, yeah. right? Like, and he probably is. He, I mean, he probably all is. things considered, Shakespeare is probably the greatest. If he really was one person, whether he was Christopher Marlowe or not, right. if he really was one person who wrote all of these pieces by himself, with of course some influence that doesn't take away from him writing them by himself, in the span of time that he wrote them, then he was a genius. He was he was the equivalent to yeah. a Beethoven or to an Einstein. He yes. was a genius of literature. And and so, you know, I mean, credit where credit's due. And it's not the, the thing that makes Shakespeare great is not the language. No, it's not that. Like I said, it's oh, OK. I say that. OK, well, it is it's, the language. It is the language. It's not the loftiness of the language, but it is the the poetry in his prose. Right. It, it was. This was not re- being written for the elite. This right. was being written for the plebs. Exactly. Actually. Um, like I said, he was playing to Queen the Queen Elizabeth seats. showing up at this at this theater is a big deal. A big deal, and it's, it's probably it probably never happened. happened. <laughs> yeah. People like that didn't go to the theater like this. If they were going to watch a play, the play came to them because this is a trashy place. I mean, they closed it's them dirty. because of the plague. Yeah, the floors are made of dirt and shit. Like it's it's not a place that anyone you know who's of any high birth would want to be seen. Right. So. So, you know, and like I said, the language thing, really, all you have to do is just read Shakespeare with footnotes and just read it for a while. It takes, it took me about half a semester of a course in Shakespeare before I really felt like I understood the language. If you can get through, if you can read two two of his plays, just, I think it's two is a, probably a good number. Read two of his plays with footnotes. With you'll footnotes. never need footnotes again. And then you'll be fine after that. Yeah. And, and, and once you start seeing what's beneath the surface, it's, you know, he's an incredible writer. We're just bragging on. Yeah, we're just sucking we his dick. Which he like may have minutes. actually enjoyed. That's also a, true. A bit of and so the line, dicky, dicky bringing suck, it, suck. bringing it back to the movie, the line when, uh, she says to him, I've never taken off a man's clothes before. And he says, neither have I. You sure about that, you're Will? Like, mm-hmm, you sure about that, boy? Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah. Um, so do you like, so they're, they're performing Romeo and Juliet now. Like yes, they're they actually are. performing the play. Do you, do you like their performance of Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I cried a little bit when I watched you it. You did. You cried like a little, little puss puss. Oh, my God. <laughs> fucking dick i'm sorry um yeah i cried I, a little i bit. cried a little bit too i cried a little bit too just to be fair <clears throat> and to be honest like rnj really is not even in like my top 
five even of my favorite Shakespeare plays. No, my, not not, not even either. up there. But it still there's, can I have mean, an effect on me when sure. it's performed well. I, th- I think there's a reason that they teach it in like 10th grade high school. Because it's easy. It's easy. And, and it's, because they expect teenagers will like the romance. Right. And it's a good way to expose uh, kids to Shakespeare for the first time um, because it's accessible. It, I think that it is probably appropriately identified. Uh, I mean, simply because it's taught in high school, I think it is appropriately identified at his as his most accessible work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's 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 not my favorite. Definitely. No, but it does but do. I have weird favorite. Like I think my favorite's probably like As You Like It or something like that. I love As You Like It. I think I'm a Macbeth girl. Yeah, Macbeth is great. Hamlet's great. handsome lady Macbeth. I really like Titus Andronicus too. Titus Andronicus is. I great. almost I almost got to play her one one year, but then we didn't yeah. we didn't have the cast for it. So the fucking Tempest. So we had to change to. Uh, you like the Tempest? I do. I like the Tempest. Tempest is great. We changed to Much Ado, which is also one of my Much favorite. Much Ado is plays. great too. I played Dogberry in that. That was so fun. We still have. You know what we should do? We should do a Shakespeare month. We should do a Shakespeare month. And if we do a Shakespeare, I'm not going to say it because we'll definitely do it, and I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it. Already. Yeah, don't ruin it. I don't want to spoil it. Um, we should do a Shakespeare month. But, but anyways, yeah, I think their their performance of R and J is fine in this. Like I said, I was sure I was moved by it. Yeah. Um, and for it being R and J, that's saying something. But uh, uh, I the real performance that I'm moved by is the one that's about to happen on screen yeah. when. Queen Elizabeth pops up. Um, Queen Elizabeth, what I assume you know enough about her. Uh, I, I know historically. Some, sure, yeah. Elizabeth I was daughter to Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, who was famously executed. Just watch the Tudors; it's fine. Yeah, that's you'll enough. get everything you need to know, and it's super sexy. And way way some, sexier than real history. Some banging. Um, uh, she was declared illegitimate when the marriage was was annulled. She was imprisoned during Roman Catholic Mar- Queen Mary, her half-sister's reign, because it was believed she was supporting Protestant rebels. Then she eventually ruled, and she was the one who we know as the Virgin Queen, because she never got married. Uh, she was courted a lot, but she doesn't, was just like... Doesn't mean she didn't bang, but... No thanks. Not officially. No thanks. I'm the queen, and I don't really, you know want a guy to come up on in here you know what's really weird about the academy awards <clears throat> so we of course because we're doing this on popcorn poops this month this did win best picture the year that it came out uh it was nominated alongside elizabeth which is a, a biopic about queen elizabeth the first who also appears in this movie and it was also nominated alongside life is beautiful saving private ryan and the thin red line huh so War movies. In yeah, not just war movies, three World War Two movies. Life is Beautiful is the least warry movie of the three because it's a it, it takes place during World War Two, but it's not really about mm. it's not a war movie as as it as it goes. Uh but yeah, what was going on in like nineteen ninety eight or nineteen I guess it was March twenty first, nineteen ninety nine is when the award ceremony ceremony was going on. What was happening in nineteen ninety eight, nineteen ninety nine that just struck a chord with audiences that we got two Elizabethan era movies and three World War Two movies and those were our best picture nominees? Weird. It's that so is weird. weird, isn't it? It is weird. Um <clears throat> had to be had to be something like in the culture at the time that resonated or something. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention, history trivia, is that it's possible there actually was no war of the theaters. 
and what I mean by that is that it's possible that it was just a publicity stunt by the playwrights to attract people to come watch the plays right. where they were making, you know, kind of like Miley Cyrus, right? You know? <laughs> right. Pretending like who, she's who, crazy. Who has, as far as I'm concerned, probably one of the best PR teams Got to. available Got right to. now because it's... Because no one thinks she's a little girl anymore, and now no one thinks she's trashy anymore. Well, it's, it's, Slo- slowly, it's slowly, slowly. It's moving slowly. away from that. Yeah. Slowly moving from twerking and <laughs> getting to... She's retiring the twerking and right, the, the yeah. tongue thing and, and all that kind of bald. stuff. And, yeah. Oh, this line that yeah, we are the, the line that she's about a, to have from... It is my favorite line in the entire movie, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. The queen is is basically pardoning uh, Viola for being a woman in a theater by saying, "It's it the the, the well, illusion is remarkable." First, you've got to have the accusation before that, where uh, they uh, who who is it who accuses Tilney? her? Tilney accuses her. He says that woman is a woman. And I'm just like, mm, yeah, thanks. We've been accused for just exactly that much over the centuries. Yeah, thank ac- you. Thank accusa- you very much. Wow, that's interesting. The accusation itself is very poignant. Yeah, it is. That woman is a woman. And it's like, yeah. This woman's crime is being a woman. Is being a woman, yeah. right? Great line already. And then, and then, of course, Affleck's line is cute after, what, a woman? You mean that goat? And he's trying to, you know, yeah. distract. But then when the queen comes up, she says, but I know something about a woman in a man's profession. <sighs> yes, by God, I do know about that. That's amazing. It's and amazing. And it's just like, oh, man. I mean, it's wonderful. A, it's, it's, it's an incredible, like, display of womanly empathy. Uh you know, Which when in great contrast to her selling her out earlier. Yeah, man, it's it's weird. Like it it's in direct conflict with that. Which I didn't think about till you mentioned, but now it pisses me off. Right. Like it, it like goes all against I thought of was character. like, how does she know that she just had sex? Is like she's sniffing or something? Yeah. What 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 the hell are we doing here that you what know this, like, she had memoirs sex? Memoirs of a geisha where you're like right? feeling up and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? Um, please. So and I bet you never thought we'd do a memoirs of a geisha reference on popcorn boobs. Oh, I mean, we might do memoirs of a geisha at some point. We might. I don't really like that movie. I do like that movie. All right. So all right, Last Samurai is better. <laughs> I love the Last Samurai. Um, yeah, but man, what a line! But I know something about a woman in a man's profession. It's wonderful, says the Queen. I mean. Because, hell, this is our virgin queen. This is the woman who didn't get married. She is in a man's profession. She's the king. Mm-hmm. That's what she is. She's the king. Ruler of the land. And she's been having to put up with the bullshit that comes from the fact that she has a vagina for her entire reign and before. So, I mean, it's just, it's so poignant on so many levels, and it's really wonderful. Oh, we didn't actually talk about this, but we mentioned Wabash, who has a, a stutter, uh, and when he when he goes onto stage, his stutter disappears. This is actually a real phenomenon that is well we known did, to. We did talk about it a little. I uh, did we a little bit. Well, it's it's a it's a phenomenon that's well known to speech therapists and other modern day pathologists who study and treat stuttering. Uh, and actually, many actors who are former stutterers first entered the profession when it was recommended to them as a therapy for their speech inte- impediment. Famous actors who turned to acting to help their stuttering include James Earl Jones, Emily Blunt, Bruce Willis, and Nicholas Brendan. Wow. Nicholas Brendan, it's Xander. It's our Buffy friend. It's our Buffy friend Xander. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, isn't that's, it? That's a really cool 
But yeah, that's a, that's that, that's a real thing. I saw someone on a message board somewhere saying like it's totally unrealistic that he would have a stutter and then it would just disappear. It's like, nah, man, no. actually, no, no, that's not unrealistic. Weirdly, no. There, are, like, like I said, I don't have a, a nifty little list like you do, but I know there are a lot of famous singers where that's the same case. Oh, where really? They're, and when they speak, they stutter, but when they sing, you would never be able to tell. Oh, that's interesting. Or stutter, or have some other speech impediment. It's also like how. The Beatles turn into Americans when they start singing, or British singers in general <laughs> just turn into Americans. Or if you're Iggy Azalea, you go from a backwoods Australian chick to a black girl from Atlanta. Oh, How yeah. does that work? Hmm. Well, anyway, this is not <laughs> this is not the place to argue Iggy Azalea's <clears throat> cultural appropriation. But um, <laughs> back to Shakespeare. <laughs> this scene made me cry. Yeah, this whole end of the movie. Did you cry? Oh uh, no! You told me you cried. Not at this. You're lying. Scene. You're lying. Not at this. Because when we scene. weren't on the podcast, no. you said you cried. No, no, no. Only I only cried at their performance of Romeo and Juliet because it was powerful. No, I thought you said this was the scene you cried and not the Romeo and Juliet scene. Nope. <laughs> You're a liar. No, this scene. This I mean, this scene is, it's okay. Um, I guess there's no other way for them to wrap this up with. I love that earlier in the movie, Marlowe gave him like a bunch of uh, plot and character stuff for R&J. And now Viola is giving him a bunch of plot and character stuff and names and et cetera for mm-hmm. Twelfth Night. Yep. So. And also like he's he's been gathering influence and stuff and inspiration i guess people uh, saying things people saying thing like there was a toward the beginning of the movie there was a, a priest a street preacher mm-hmm. who was you know condemning the theater and he was saying things like the what rose uh smells is rank or something like that clearly a reference it? to uh and a plague upon both your houses he says uh let's see a pre okay so a priest is, is shouting descent of the theater saying the rose smells thusly as rank by any other name or by any name and he says a plague on both their houses like you said um and yes yes of course and and i guess that comes of course from romeo and juliet uh where the line is that which we call a rose would by any other name smell as sweet yes that's right so and when, there's a lot of that in the movie where, like, characters say things that end up in Shakespeare's plays. Um, and that's that's cool. That's a little yeah, nice. There's a lot of fan service. There is a lot of fan service. But sometimes I think it, it, it does just fine. Like, it does well and it does just fine. Sometimes I think it serves another purpose. Like, in the scene where she's on the balcony and she's saying, Romeo, Romeo, instead of it being this, you know young naive child who is lusting after a boy she's just met it's a woman who is dreaming of being an an actor not an actress actress yeah but um uh she she's saying romeo romeo as i've been meaning to say this i've been meaning to say this the entire time i love the ink under the nails I yes, love the yes, dirty yes. That was a note that I made too. It's it's such a little touch that I feel like in any other movie. Like I feel like uh, it, it just suddenly reminded me of 
the scene at the beginning of No Country for Old Men with the scuff marks on the floor. Mm -hmm. It's a detail that you wouldn't necessarily think to put in the film, but I think it works so well. The extreme close-ups on his fingers as he's writing and, you know, the, the all of the ink and stuff on his fingers and under his nails. Uh, and not only that, but, like, in... I, I, I noticed it for some reason, noticed it specifically like in the in the love scenes and the sex scenes where like he's holding her and stuff and his hands are, are inky and mm -hmm. they've got all the ink on it. I don't know. It's really cool. Like, I, yeah, it is. It's a great image. It's super characterization. Yeah. This yeah. guy writes and writes and writes all the time. He breathes it in the scene. I love the moments where like he comes into the room to write and he like sits on the edge of his chair and stuff. Yeah. Not on the edge of his chair, on the legs of his chair. Like he doesn't even bother to pick it up from where it's fallen over. He just sits wherever he can sit yeah. down as quickly as he can. And he he has little ticks and stuff when his, with his, uh, his like uh, He's, yeah, he, uh, he puts the, his hands together and rubs yeah, the pen on the uh, on the. The pl is it technically a quill? I guess so. Yeah. Or is a quill? Does a quill have a have like a tip on it? Like its I, own. I tip? don't know. Okay. Well, whatever it is, I'll call it a quill. Words. Uh, when he picks up the quill to write, he like rubs it between his hands before he starts, and then sits down and starts writing. And he mm -hmm. does that every time he sits down to write, and it's just a little. It's just and a then, little. And then like moment. he he does something else too. He like blows on his thumb or something like that yeah. too. Yeah. He's got little ticks like that, and it's he very... doesn't bite his thumb. No, to be fair, of course, because that would be rude. It would. Yes. Indeed. Uh, so we're um, we're right here at the end of the movie. The, the end credits have started. And overall, overall opinion. Overall opinion. Um, I don't. I don't know that it deserved best picture. In a when it when it comes out the same year as a Terrence Malick movie like The Thin Red Line, which is a brilliant, amazing, dare I say, masterpiece, and of course Saving Private Ryan, which is an amazing Steven Spielberg movie, and then Elizabeth, which is another really really amazing movie about you know the life of of or the I guess the early life of Queen Elizabeth the first. I don't know. I feel like this was maybe would maybe be my fourth pick for best picture oh, wow. that year. Um, but I mean, as a movie, man, I, I what what's the word I'm going to use? As a movie, it's cute. It's cute. I I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I watched it. I enjoyed it too. I still, it's, it's a fine piece of I still of am not a fan of romantic comedies and it did not sway my opinion. Whereas other romantic comedies have kind of swayed my opinion a little like uh what Punch Drunk Love? Oh, Punch Drunk Love is a special. I I really special. really love that movie, but very rarely can I absolutely fall in love with a romantic comedy. I didn't absolutely I I, fall in love with this. Uh well you you really like Love actually. I really I Love Love Actually. Yeah, Love Actually is a is a brilliant movie and probably my favorite like romantic comedy, like run of the mill romantic mm -hmm. comedy. If we're not including things like Punch Drunk Love, which is a P.T. Anderson film, that's a whole different thing. But um, yeah. but but this definitely those kind of movies are like these really special cases for me where it's romantic comedy is pretty much like the absolute opposite of the genres of movies and and f that I like to watch in fiction that I like to read and so for a romantic comedy to to get into my radar and for me to really love it is a very special case I wasn't in love with this movie but no. but I really liked it though yeah, it's fine it was cute it's totally and fine. as someone who really enjoys Shakespeare it was fun to see all the little references and stuff, sure. to think about R&J, to think about the way that the movie sort of parallels R&J with like uh, going back and forth between tension and comedy and things like that. Um, it was cute and it was a fun, 
it was a fun allusion to yeah. his work and to the people of that time too, to the other playwrights too. And so big, you know, hats off to uh, legendary football commentator John Madden <laughs> on making a mostly competent <laughs> movie. You're hilarious. I just wish that more of the movie had been like that final scene. Yeah. With Queen Elizabeth. If more yeah. of the movie had felt like that, then man, if I'd had a whole movie that hit me the way that line did. This is I think this has been a really fair assessment of this film and the things that didn't work and then I think we paid enough lip service to the things that really did work for us and ultimately I'm I'm positive on this movie. I think it's a yeah. I think it's a good movie that does what it attends to. Oh, and we didn't talk about fine. the costumes either. I love the costumes. They're great. Yeah. But that's fine, you know. Oh well. Anyways, now that we've reached the end of the movie, we'd like to read a five-star review that we received on iTunes. This review comes from Steffi794, and Steffi794 writes, I stumbled onto this podcast on Twitter. It was recommended to me as I am part of a funny podcast, Soiled Restroom Cinema, and listened to a lot, so it was recommended. I was impressed by the banter and trivia I learned from this husband and wife team. I watched The Room, and the commentary track was so much better than the movie, it actually made me want to watch the movie again to see everything I missed. Subscriber for life thank you so much very cool if you'd like to leave us a rating and review on itunes we'd really appreciate it and if it's a five-star review we'll even read it on the show as always you can find us on our website at popcornpoops.com please follow us on twitter and like us on facebook if you'd like if you'd like to receive updates about the show including our weekly movie still identification game if you have a question comment or movie request for us you can reach us on our social media outlets or by emailing us at thepopcornpoops at gmail.com Next week, we'll be kicking off a new theme. During the month of March, we will be watching and discussing anime films, starting with Katsuhiro Otomo's 1988 film, Akira. If you have any questions about that movie or related topics you'd like us to discuss, please contact us through social media or email. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. Bye-bye. We are the Popcorn Poops. Hello, everybody. On behalf of Nick, Joe, and Vern, we would like to invite you back for a brand new season of the As You Watch podcast. In our upcoming season, we will be talking about franchises, trilogies, and series of movies that you will recognize and some that you may not. We will also continue to post fun and insightful interviews with many people in the world of entertainment, as well as feature a lot of great guests from other sites and podcasts. So be sure to check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podomatic, and on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our older episodes on our site, asyouwatch.wordpress.com.